Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Dandelion Energy, helping homeowners across the Northeast to lower their carbon footprints with geothermal heating and cooling systems. More information at dandelionenergy.com. I'm Jim Browdy, head on Boston Public Radio. New polling on the presidential race, according to ABC News, The Washington Post, 44% say they're preparing to vote for Donald Trump over Joe Biden. Just 38% say they're in Camp Biden, a year and a half out from the election. So we'll get your thoughts on why a plurality of the American people appear ready to return an insurrectionist already indicted for other crimes and on trial now for rape and defamation to the White House. We'll get your thoughts. I'm Marjorie Egan. Soon, Bed Bath & Beyond will be no more. And Christmas tree shops are shrinking under bankruptcy proceedings. What will we do for our future shopping extravaganzas? We'll talk about that, declining state tax revenues, and more with the Boston Globe's business columnist, Shirley Young. All that ahead, Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Jim Browdy. I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. So before we start, I'm going to mention two great experiences I had yesterday. Is that okay mm-hmm. with you? Certainly. One, I was at Symphony Hall for this concert for the city, which featured Andres Nelson's, oh, Keith yeah, Lockhart, yeah. whole host of compositions by people of color and women, probably most significantly a brilliant piano performance by who? Mayor, Mayor Wu. Wu. We're going to talk to Keith Lockhart about it tomorrow and the mayor herself on Friday. But it was just a wonderful day. How does she do day. it? She's I, running the mayor for the city of Boston. She's got two know. little kids and she's practicing piano for two All hours I a day. All I can say, it was brilliant. She got a stunning yeah. reception as well she deserved. The whole event was great. I want to talk about it. And I ended my day since we are big time advocates for small independent restaurants kind mm-hmm. of thing. At a new Italian restaurant in Somerville called Josephine, Michael Scalfo. Owns oh, a bunch of places oh, oh, and came oh. just spectacular and uh, spectacular. But let me also say, if you want to know where it is, it's between two huge important institutions in my life: Market Basket and Wings Over Somerville. <laughs> so, if you need to check it out, Josephine's great. And again, we'll talk about concert for the city. It was a fabulous performance with a great audience and that sort of thing. So. First, after four years of the chaotic Trump presidency, talk about euphemisms, two impeachments, one attempted coup and an insurrection for which he may be indicted, a botched pandemic response, 36 felony charges on trial for rape and defamation. I'll stop there. Could it really be that the American people are ready to support the president for former president for reelection? Well, that's how it seems. Based on a new poll out from ABC News, The Washington Post, of all respondents, 44% said they would definitely or probably vote for Trump in 2024, as compared to only 38% that they planned on backing the current president, Joe Biden. 44 to 38. The poll included a whole lot of negative news for Biden, including that just 32% of all think Biden has the mental sharpness it takes to serve effectively. 54% think Trump has the needed mental sharpness. Really? I mean, really? So we want to talk about, uh, uh, not so much about the Biden-Trump matchup. We want to talk about how a man who 55% of the country in this poll thinks should be indicted for something <laughs> is currently the front runner 
for the presidency of the United States. Why don't you repeat that, Jim? A man who 55% of the respondents to this poll thinks should be indicted for one or more things he has done in recent times is currently the significant front runner for 2024. What does it say about us, the American people? And let me just say, you cannot get away today saying it's all Fox News. Fox News is not generating 44% support for uh, this guy. It's just not happening. I, I am stunned by that. That's almost half of the American people are ready to return this guy to the White House. You want to explain it? Well, I, I really can't explain it. You know, speaking of Fox News, Fox News got rid of their star host that was making caboodles of money for them more well, than anybody else by the millions of dollars yeah. because of his misogynistic and, and, uh, and anti-Semitic and nasty, nasty office uh, c- conduct. And racist comments, apparently, and racist that racist comments. post. Yeah. But I guess the people that, that, that watch Fox News, you know— <laughs> Guy that's been accused by twenty four women now of comes on sexual misconduct. Now he's got on trial for this, and all the lying. But it just doesn't seem to seem to matter. I don't know. I don't get it. I don't get it. You know what I really don't get what? is that the same poll says fifty four percent of people say that Joe Biden is dishonest. I know, I'm not I sure know, I know. what he's done except for associate with his son uh, Hunter, who's in trouble for a gun charge and child support payments and and tax. not a gun charge. He failed to disclose that he had had been addicted in his gun permit application. It's not a gun That's right. charge. Okay, what, he, he failed to disclose he was addicted. Yeah. You are correct, and also he's got some tax problems allegedly. He does, yeah. So fifty four percent say Biden is dishonest. I'm not aware of anything particularly dishonest that he's done. <laughs> I know. But 63, only 63, only 9% more people think that Trump is dishonest with all these charges against him. So I have no idea. I have well, no I've idea. thought a lot about it since I saw the poll. Mm-hmm. And I think what did it is, I don't know if you've seen on TV, I assume you have, the deposition that Trump did in the E. Jane Jean Carroll lawsuit. This oh, yes, lawsuit we should play the sound. About rape and defamation. I mm-hmm. assume, he's asked about, you all know this, the infamous Access Hollywood tape. I assume it's this answer that caused people to say, this is the kind of guy I want to support. Here's Trump. You can do anything. Grab them by the You can do anything. That's what you said, correct? Well, historically, that's true with stars. It's true with stars that, that they can grab women by the Well, that's what, it's, if you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true. <laughs> Unfortunately or fortunately. And you consider yourself uh, to be a star? I think you can say that. I could support that guy. <laughs> I mean, that is and the, the kind of man face, I'd like to have as my president. Contempt and disgust on his face. But I think we we here in Boston are uniquely qualified to discuss this because back in the day, remember James Michael Curley? Yeah. I mean, he was convicted twice. Did he serve in prison? <laughs> was he, he was in prison. He was in prison during his last term as the mayor of Boston. So apparently, uh, there's a there's a fondness here for rogues. But I would call James Michael Curley a much different kind of rogue who was very much interested in taking care of poor people and the down their luck than former president. Uh, Trump. So I don't know what's going on. But Wait a um, second. You weren't moved by his incredibly powerful answer about why uh, stars can grab women's <laughs> genitals? I mean, by yeah, the way, I, I am so incredulous. They've been doing it for a million years. A million years. Right, if you're a star. You're Calm a star. I, 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 I think you could say I am I didn't know he had any stars a million years ago, but apparently I missed out on that as well. 877 The issue for me, if you're dying to talk about the Trump versus Biden matchup, do that. What I'm most interested in, I think Marjorie is too, is a sane explanation of why nearly half the American people 
uh, think that uh, that Donald Trump would be an appropriate uh, person to return to the White House. Again, particularly in light of the fact that 55 percent think he should be indicted for something, some crimes that he well, has again, committed, according to them. You know, I, I don't see Trump as the same kind of swashbuckling person that would attract this kind of adoration. Mm. But remember, I, mean, I mentioned James Michael Curley. Yeah. We had Buddy Cianci down in Providence. Yeah. Um, Providence was quite mobbed up at the time mm-hmm. he was the mayor yeah. of Providence, and lots of people think he had too close ties to the uh, to the mob. And then there mm-hmm. was the incident about burning his wife's lover's uh, hand with the, the was it his hand he burned with a cigarette? He burned yeah, something. Yeah, put, put, a, put a, the cigarette out in the hand. Yeah. For the so lover. so that was not exactly you know. An, his an wife's fabulous, by the way. I interviewed her years ago. She is spectacular, by the way. She is great. So people love Buddy Cianci. So I, I I don't know. Maybe we have a thing about. About criminals, Jim, I'm not sure. Jane from Concord, thank you for calling. What's your explanation, Jane? Go ahead. Hi. Hi. Well, I just, I, I don't know why people want to vote for Trump because I still can't believe he was ever president, actually. He was, yeah. But I think if we'd had ranked choice voting, he might not have gotten the nomination mm. um, because ranked choice voting tends to eliminate extremists like it did Sarah Palin in Alaska. Uh-huh. I think they have some sort of new voting system. So I think that would be real help for democracy. And um, one other thing I mentioned to your screener is the media keeps talking about how old Biden is, but they aren't talking very often about how Trump's also four years older, like they did in the previous election. They compared their ages. Now it's just Biden's the old guy. They're both older. So well, also, I'd go further, Jane. They're not only both older, and we've talked about both of them being older candidates. This gets back to Marjorie saying, what's the number who don't think that uh, 63 percent don't think that Biden has the mental sharpness? Right. Has Trump exhibited mental sharpness? If he has, I have missed it. I mean, I, I, Jane, thanks for the call. We uh, pre- no, I'm serious about that. No, Trump gives you these rambling, rambling spe- exactly. speeches and rambling answers. I think it's the cheeseburgers. People are aligned with him because they love the fact that he eats a lot of cheeseburgers Jim, Taco Bell. and French fries. Yeah, and, and apparently Biden's wife is trying to get him to eat more vegetables I didn't know that. and salmon and all those healthy things. Apparently he's got a pretty bad diet, too. He does? Neither of them pretty fit, interesting. by the way. Well, you know what thin. I learned at the he's White House thin. Correspondence Dinner? I was what? under the impression that you should never toast with water. And what he said, I believe he said, that his father taught him or his grandfather taught him or his uncle taught him, this is Joe Biden, said that if you toast with something other than alcohol, I hope I get this right, you toast with the drink in your left hand. Did you ever heard that before? No, I did not know that. Okay, check I it out, will but I, but I didn't know he was not a drinker until I read this week. Yeah. He was a Gatorade, Gatorade kind of guy. Huh. Nancy from Amesbury, thank you for calling. Hey, Nancy, what's up? Yes, good morning. I just believe that um, you're discounting the uh, importance of Fox News and just alt-right media. I, I feel that my fellow men have been so brainwashed. I mean, you know, I, I just think that that is a really, really important factor that we're not we're not addressing well enough. Nancy, Nancy, and, just and wait a second. I, 50, I'm wait, with you, Nancy. Nancy. No, no, I'm, with I'm you. not. 55 percent don't the, in answer to the question. They didn't say he would be indicted. They said he should be indicted. So 55 percent say a former president should be charged with a crime that could lead to jail time. That's the guy I want to be my president. 
So, I mean, I would argue that what, what that media that you and Marjorie believe is at the center of this, they're making the case that he shouldn't be indicted. He hasn't he, committed any crimes. I, I keep telling you, Pete, there's a certain admiration for Pete. I mean, he gets up there and basically admits that he cheats on his taxes. Hey, you never really cheat in their taxes. That's, that's kind of great. I'm smart, yeah. There's a thing about rogues and scuff laws that... I Do you buy that, appeal, Nancy, I or no? But but I but I also believe that they don't they don't publicize that well enough. I mean, they, you know, they're not they're not covering that in their news. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're you're right, Marjorie, that they're probably the little that they do cover it, they are, you know, giving kudos to. But but I believe that so many people are just not they're they're not fed the correct knowledge, and they're being brainwashed by what knowledge they are being fed. Well, you may be Nancy, right, unfortunately. You know, I, I think Jim discounts. It's not just it's not just Fox News. It's an entire ecosystem. No, you're right. Yeah. You're, there of, is that. Of, yeah. of radio in your car, if you're in certain parts of the country, you hear this right-wing AM radio that is in the same place uh, as, as and further to the right maybe than, than Fox News, or there's uh, uh, the OAN, um, One American News, and there's Newsmax, right. all these stations. And yeah, and and Sinclair Broadcasting. Right. Thank you for pointing that out, and Nancy right. with Jones. What is it? Two hundred and thirty broadcast stations them, across the country. I think it was so one there's of the a biggest, script, if not the biggest, and it's yeah. very conservative. And you hear the same news in your local, uh, and and we get back to the uh, local newspaper demise of local newspapers, where people I think were were more trusting. Hey, Nancy, those are gone. I'm sorry, we're but sh- it's also the psychological thing. It's the what, is what it? they appeal to. They appeal to fear and anger. You're kind of baser. Uh, the dark angels as okay. opposed to your... But, but let's uh, get away from up. fear and anger for a second and ask Nancy... Well, that's, that's very compelling. Nancy, do you find it compelling that Donald Trump said that the reason why stars can grab the genitals <laughs> of women is because they've been doing it for a million years? I mean, is that compelling oh, to right. you? Yeah. Well, if you're mentally deranged, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Nancy. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it for a What I loved call. is the expression on his face. No, I know. I mean, I, mean, I know. It was just it was just full of... Not not good uh, higher angels sort of things. What, what percentage I mean? before we break said that uh, Biden was dishonest? What, what percentage? Fifty four percent say he's dishonest. What is going on? Well, here? again, I think I think the sun has been a oh, huge the Hunter Biden thing. Yeah. Siren call on the right, and they're linking the sun's activities to Biden's and talking about the influence he was able to wield in places like China you know because the, he was the president's son. But they're forgetting completely about. All the money Ivanka Trump made Hundreds of millions. from China. Jared Kushner, the billions of dollars in investments he got for his corporations because his father-in-law was the president. So uh, I guess it's good for the goose and not good for the gander. Yeah. Anyway, we'll be right back. To quick pledge break. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Mardrigan. We're at the library tomorrow because it's Tuesday. Keith Lockhart from the Boston Pops will be joining us. We're talking about a poll out, I think this morning, maybe yesterday, from Washington Post, ABC News, showing Donald Trump beating uh, Joe Biden uh, 44 to 38, six points in a rematch. I'm less interested in talking about that, though you can if you want. I'm more interested in talking about what it is that uh, causes 44 percent of the people 
to think that a uh, man who uh, has already been indicted for 36 felony charges is currently on trial, civil proceeding for rape and defamation, is likely to be indicted for attempt to steal an election and uh, uh, insurrection, uh, is uh, giving an explanation and a deposition in the E. Jean Carroll story as to why it's fine, like he did, to grab the you-know-whats of uh, women. Uh, I just, I really don't understand. And by the way, let me make clear, this is not a Republican-Democratic thing. If 44% said, as they seem to do, that they preferred DeSantis, the numbers, I, I, I get that. Uh, they're sick of Biden, whatever it is. They want a different uh, direction. I just don't get the Trump thing at all. Marjorie thinks the central driver is Fox News and that whole ecosystem, as you call it. Well, we have an awful lot of textures who are very uh, skeptical of polls, Jim. Uh, they well, just don't think uh, that, that these, doesn't wash anymore. That these po- well, th- that's what ahead. they're saying. I just point that out to you. Okay. And uh, several po- people are pointing at other mistakes that uh, Trump may have made. Now, I don't know if Ralph Arlington is right, but What's he that? says the oldest homo sapien fossil is 315,000 years old. Yeah. So Trump was off by 700,000 years. And Bob in Plymouth reminds us, remember when Trump said how in the Revolutionary War the British invaded our airports? No, I actually don't. <laughs> I mean, it's totally non compass in most of his speeches. I watch whatever they broadcast. And by the way, CNN's doing ben a town Franklin hall with him on Wednesday night. He did to Paris. He did, he did. And by the way, yeah, it was delayed <laughs> because of weather. Let's go to Waltham where Carol's on the phone. Carol, thank you very much for calling. Hi. Hi, Jim and Marjorie. Um, I just think it's unfair that sometimes we don't call out Biden for his inability to put sentences together and thoughts together. When a child asked him where he had last been, he couldn't remember. And the child had to remind him he was in Ireland. Mm -hmm. It was a week before he came, you know, a week after he came back. I'm an independent. I would rather somebody other than Trump because I find him to be very... I'm, well, he doesn't, he doesn't speak my language, mm-hmm. but I have to say, as a senior citizen, I was in far better shape when Trump was the president. How than so? How so? The, the economy, um, my kids going to school, education. I believe if you ought to go to a, an expensive college, it's up to you to pay for it. It isn't up to me as a senior, and my tax job is to help you. Mm. These are my thoughts. I was what did Trump? I'm sorry. What did Trump, uh, Carol? Because I probably missed. What did he do for education? I, I, what was his great education initiative? Other than the fact no, that he had to shut down Trump University because he was a fraud. He didn't do the ten grand fraud. student loan thing. Oh, that's right? your. Oh, you, oh, that he's not he didn't, didn't do yeah. loan forgiveness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Loan forgiveness. I'm not for that. My children all went okay. to public school. Mm-hmm. I sat down and said, "This is what I can contribute. This is what you're going to be responsible for. You make the decision. But when you graduate." Both my children were able, didn't have uh, any debt, were able to buy homes before they were married. So, Carol, if um, I may, yes. you said at the beginning of this that you're, you're obviously not a Biden fan, but you prefer somebody other than Trump. If Trump was the candidate uh, for on the Republican side, would he get your vote? He would. And are he you— I'm sorry, go ahead. That was the same thing that happened with Hillary. I didn't like Hillary, so I voted for Trump. So, Carol, do you think – do you buy the notion that he attempted a coup, that he attempted to overturn a democratically decided election? January 6th was was a terrible thing. If he continues to talk about uh, the election being stolen from him, he should lose the election. Okay. Carol, thank you. I'm sorry. 
we're, we're, and not and not continue that down that path. We're glad you called. Thank you for your perspective, Carol. So that's one part of an explanation. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. Their their four hundred one ks were much better during the Trump presidency than they are now. The stock market. I think a lot of people think the stock market was better during the Trump Trump presidency. That's going to be a problem that Biden's going to have to address. Do you think one point one million Americans would have died? If Joe Biden had been president during well, the pandemic? Well, I, I, I think these polls, I, I'm with the people. I, I think You don't that, buy the polls either? No, no. I, I, don't, I think, I think if crazy. it's a Biden-Trump rematch, Biden wins. Yeah. And you have, to look at the, you have to look at the swing states. Again, it's all about the three swing states. And, well, uh, this is I, not saying that uh, he couldn't win an electoral margin. Mm-hmm. Obviously, electoral, as we've had a couple of presidents in recent times, didn't win the popular vote. Right. This is based on numbers. It's not based on electoral votes. I'm not quarreling with that. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't have a problem. I have a problem with it. I don't think uh, it's incredible that uh, in a head-to-head, that Joe Biden would lose to uh, Donald Trump. I just, I, I, I understand. I want to repeat. I understand voting for another Republican over Joe Biden. I don't understand forty-four percent saying they'd vote for uh, Donald Trump. I just, I really, sorry, I don't get it. Steve, I don't understand it either, but I don't think he's going to win. Well, whatever. Stephen in Boston, thank you for calling. Hi, Stephen. What's up? Hey, Jim Marjorie. I got a couple of quick things. So try not to cut me off. One of the things that you gotta gotta understand about Donald Trump, we don't like the stuff he says just as much as you do. Okay, we hate the stuff that he says over the weekend, but we like the policies. We like the border being protected. What's going on in Texas right now is un- unbelievable. What's going on? We see the videos on TikTok. As far as Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, okay, they made money, but they had legitimate businesses. Joe Biden's son couldn't speak the language, didn't know anything about uh, energy. He's getting all kinds of money from companies that he has no business being associated with. So that's that's the difference between. OK, I didn't interrupt you, Stephen. Stephen, you like the policies. I am one who believes that it has been credibly demonstrated by the January 6th committee that he attempted to overthrow. the. Excuse me. I didn't interrupt you. I'd like the same courtesy. That I, it has credibly been demonstrated that he attempted to overthrow the government of the United States of America. That doesn't bother you? No, you know why? Because no. it wasn't it wasn't an attempt. Look, don't cut me off. The people that went into January sixth was absolutely one hundred percent wrong. Okay, but let me give you an example real quick. That guy, um, what's his name? The shaman. Okay, I'm not talking he about him. I'm talking about Donald Trump. I'm not talking about the shaman. Right. There was not one person armed. Nobody, nobody did. I mean, forget. Jim they actually were armed, Stephen. Stephen, how about the call to the Secretary armed. of State in Georgia asking for eleven thousand votes? How about that? Was that okay with there you? Was one guy. Was one sorry. guy. It was the president. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm talking about one guy had a knife that was videotaping in January. Stephen, how about the forget call to the Secretary of State in Georgia? I'm talking about. I'm talking. Let's stay focused. I'm talking about what's going Stephen, on. Stephen, don't do that again to me. I'm asking you a question. How about the call to the Georgia Secretary of State? Is that okay with you? Asking for 11,000 votes? That's A-OK? No, no. It's, like I said, it's not. that's not okay. I get it. But when they t- want to change elections and they want to change the, the way you vote, the way you count votes, the amount of time you can vote, the amount of time you can count votes, when okay. they count votes two weeks after an election, that's a problem. You know what I mean? Every they were votes that were cast in day. timely fashion, Stephen. But thank you. Thanks for your perspective. We appreciate it. 877-301-8970. Are you concerned about the fact that uh, almost as many people think Joe Biden is dishonest as think Donald Trump uh, is dishonest? Are you concerned? <laughs> Are you concerned that um, that uh, 
Biden could be could lose to Donald Trump in the 2024 election. And the big concern people have is Biden's age, 877-301-8970. You know, um, there's another uh, thing that a texter that is a big factor that a lot of people in Protestant and Catholic churches are told by pastors and priests to vote for Trump because of abortion. And that's a big thing, too. I mean, you know, there's supposed to be a separation of church and state. Well, I mean, I've heard a lot of people complain about that in Catholic churches. Well, two-thirds of Americans, though, support or pro-choice in some fashion, and he's only getting 38% of the vote. So, Right, but I think that's another factor in some Could people's be. minds. Yeah. If they're very, very religious people, they might just say, I cannot vote for a Democrat because of that. Okay, uh, we are done with this. No, we're not. Come, we're oh, not? we are done with it. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, coming up. First Bed Bath & Beyond is closing. And now the locally based Christmas tree shops are filing for bankruptcy protection. We'll Listen to that. you. I know. Well, I spent a lot of time in both those places, Jim. It's an American tragedy. We'll talk about that and other business headlines with the Boston Globe's Shirley Young. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Marjorie, and we're the library tomorrow. Keith Lockhart is among our guests from the Boston Pops. We're joined now on Zoom by Boston Globe business columnist Shirley Young. After a brief hiatus, welcome back there, Shirley. Nice to see you. Hi. Hi. Hey, Shirley. Uh, great to see you again. So um, let's talk for a second about what it means for all of us that um, our tax revenues from Massachusetts fell considerably. $2.2 billion, um, by what uh, less than what the state collected a year ago, um, and how this jives with Governor Healy's promise um, not to be raising taxes. What do you think? No, to be cutting taxes. Oh, excuse me, not to be cutting taxes. No, to be cutting, to be cutting taxes. taxes. Well, you know, um, uh, you know, many of us have been watching the economy and wondering when um, revenues would drop, right? And when, um, when the, uh, you know, when uh, the good times would end, and this seems to be the beginning of that. Um, and I think what's really interesting is that, um, you know, that that there's not like a panic uh, from Governor Haley. Um, you know, the 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 state finances, all, you know, we we have a lot of money. Uh, whether it's in the rainy day fund, or, you know, whether it's from a federal relief fund. So it's really interesting that um, she she's, you know, she wants to maintain um, she wants to stick with the plan for tax relief. And I think the business community, you know, w- wants to see that as well. And so there's not not a not panic yet, <laughs> uh, which I think is good because it is just one month of revenue. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I have to say I don't get it. Here's more Healy, by the way, speaking on CBB's On the Record. This is on Saturday about this topic. The important thing, though, to remember is that our fiscal condition is strong in this state. Do you envision any cuts? Some progressive groups no. are making noise about that. They may make noise. Not going to happen. So here's what I don't get, uh, uh, Shirley, is I think everything you said is right. There's one caveat. Last year, when revenue was exploding, we heard the Speaker of the House say, I'm not sure we can afford a tax cut. Now revenue is disappearing, and he affir- confirms what the governor says. 
oh, we can definitely afford this. Well, I mean, something's wrong with that picture. We're flush. We may not be able to afford it. We're losing money, at least in one month, admittedly, and we can't afford it. Isn't there some disconnect there or am I missing something? Jim, I think we've talked about the disconnect. I think it's all politics, right? Yeah. Because, uh, you know, the Republic, we had a Republican governor uh, uh, who was in his uh, last term, uh, waning days, the lame duck governor, uh, the Democratic legislator wasn't going to give any give him anything, you know, on his way out. And so they wanted to save it for, uh, you know, uh, Governor Healy. And so that's what's playing out right now. Um, I mean, it's it's not what the shortfall is not certainly not going to affect this year's budget. Um, I mean, through through June, um, you know, I, I you know, I, I think at the moment the state can afford to stick with the original tax relief plan, um, you know, by the end of the year, things may look very different. And and next year, you know, there'll be perhaps there'll be a lot of belt tightening in the in the in the very next budget cycle. It seems to me the responsible thing for the same speaker who said last year, I'm not sure we can afford the tax cut would be let's wait a couple of months. Let's see. Uh, uh, April was horrible. Let's see if May's horrible. If it if it bounces back, that's one thing. But if May and June are horrible, we may have to rethink that. But I agree with you. It's a political uh, agenda here, and they're going to continue with it. We're talking to Shirley Young from the Boston Globe. So, Shirley, can you explain to people, um, we've been talking a lot about uh, rent control, This these proposals for transfer taxes. What's this all about? Uh, this this is a, a great story by my colleague on uh, Beacon Hill, Um because you know, there's been so much attention to rent control and whether or not um, uh, you know Beacon Hill will allow the city of Boston to enact rent control, and that was a big part of um, Mayor Wu's um, uh, political agenda. Uh, but um, cities, uh, I think, was it a dozen or quite a few cities across the yeah, the Commonwealth uh, want to um, basically say. You know, when there's a, a sale of property, uh, we want to we want to levy a, a, an extra fee on it so we can collect more money, uh, you know, for affordable housing, for other other ways to to, um, uh, you know, to, to, you know, for other uses. And so I, I think that's a really I think I thought it was really interesting that that's faced less opposition, you know, um, than rent control. I, and then I think I think there was even a developer, Steve Samuels, who's who's um, behind it, who who supports it, and he he's been developing a, a lot of much of Fenway. Can I do one of my best broken record uh, uh, imitations here? This proposal is to allow individual cities and towns to impose a local tax on the transfer of certain level of real estate. We discussed this in the rent control setting too. The bill would allow cities and towns like Boston to do rent control if they choose. I know this is what the law of the state is. Are you not troubled by the notion that 351 cities, pardon me, three representatives and senators from cities and towns that have no intention of doing any of this get to decide whether Boston can do it, Cambridge can do it, these home rule petition things or whatever variation on a home rule petition it is. Isn't that like an anachronism that maybe it's time to get rid of? Absolutely, it is. I mean, that is the original sin, right? To to have the state, uh, at, at, you know, this, you know, this many years into the, the, the Commonwealth, the age of the, the um, to, um, to have, I mean, the cities and towns should have more control on a lot of issues. And it's not just this. Um, and, um, 
and especially if so many cities want this, um, you know, Beacon Hill should allow it, but they're not always rubber stamped, right? They don't always, be, you know, Beacon Hill doesn't always agree. <laughs> no, I, I don't. Is there a champion of, of getting rid of this ridiculous uh, law up on Beacon Hill? Is there someone that's going to bat for this? So that's what it seems to be a crusade uh, to get rid of this uh, oversight of these cities and towns, which makes no sense. Well, again, I want to be clear what this is. This is a proposal, this real estate transfer tax, even if you don't like it. The issue is, should the jurisdiction in which it is being proposed to be implemented, let's say Boston, for example, should the elected leaders in Boston not be the ones who make that decision as opposed to somebody in Lemonster? Who yeah. gives a damn what they just think? Just like the selectmen in Newton should be able to decide what they want to do. Exactly. This. Yeah, I just, it, but again, the home rule petition, right? It's just crazy. I mean, this comes up every year. I, I know. I, I mean, Marjorie, you raise a good question. Is, is, who is the champion of undoing uh, home rule petitions? I don't think there is but, one, is there? Maybe there is, and I don't know about it. I don't know one. Do you, Well, there's Jim? no clear, there's no big move. To, I mean, it keeps power in the legislature, but I just, you know, rent control, by the way, we talked about that before. The, th- the story in the Globe says they prefer the transfer tax on Beacon Hill to rent control. Again, three quarters of the people in Boston, in a poll in your newspaper, I think it was your newspaper, said we want rent con- with some form of rent stabilization or rent control, yet it's going to get crushed in all likelihood. On Beacon Hill, people should be rising up about this to be able to have well, local control on an issue that will affect nobody beyond your borders. You, you know what I mean? I don't. Whatever. I know I'm going on and it's on. It's a but. factor. It's a factor in the next issue we're going to talk about right after the quick break. We're talking. We're talking to Shirley Young. She's a business consultant at the Boston Globe. We're going to take a quick pledge break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Mardrigan. We're at the library tomorrow, and we're talking to Shirley Young from The Globe. So, Shirley, before the break, we were talking about the odd situation in Massachusetts where the state legislature will have control over something, say, the citizens in maybe Chatham want to do on Cape Cod for something involving their individual town, and some of these decisions are controlled by the state. That is true, is it not, of liquor licenses, Right. Well, it is. The that... seaport is is flo- floating in liquor licenses, as your colleague Danny McDonald talked about. Some other places aren't so lucky. I mean, this is probably one of the, the perennial issues, right, about liquor licenses, especially in the city of Boston. And why is it that Beacon Hill gets to control the number of liquor licenses? And what's happened is that liquor licenses, um, you know, they're, they're, very, they're, they're, they're a finite number in Boston. Um, so they're very expensive. Um, the ones in the, if you're opening a new restaurant in the seaport, it can cost almost a half a million dollars. Right. And, um, and so, um, and, and, you know, if you're, you're, if you're a restaurant in Mattapan or Dorchester or Roxbury, um, you might not be, you, you can't afford the, um, those licenses and, um, the number. And so, uh, there's gotta be something done. I mean, the story talked about how I think there's like 80 liquor licenses in the seaport, um, yes. you know, there's a restaurant boom there mm-hmm. and a bar boom, um, and but six of those licenses came from because they're not minting new licenses. They they transferred over from you know dive bars and other bars that that couldn't make it right. Um, and so um, 
but but how but what do you do with the neighborhoods like Mattapan, Dorchester, Roxbury that that want liquor licenses and and um, I mean that's how restaurants make a lot of their money, right? Um, uh, it's it's from the drinks often, and um, and so um, I think there is a proposal in the legislature to. Um, you know, to maybe create a special category of licenses, you know, restricted licenses that that would go to certain neighborhoods and maybe uh, be around for five years. Maybe that will help with some of the inequities in liquor licenses that happen in the city of Boston. By the way, you said 80 in the seaport. The Globe story says three in all of Mattapan, six on all of Blue Hill Avenue. I mean, there's a real equity issue. And you read the Globe story. The system is a quote, is a vestige of an era when Protestant state legislators feared that if left to their own devices, Marjorie, that's right. Irish Catholic Irish. leaders in Boston would flood the city with whiskey. You, you know, big drinkers. In all seriousness, it's none of your damn business. It is incredible. Okay. Mayor Wu and the we city council. We have to move count- on, Jim. We're Sorry. out of time. You know why? We have to get to something that's very important. What? How much time do you spend in Bed Bath and Beyond in the Christmas tree shops? You're early <laughs> young. I mean, Bed Bath and Beyond is, go- is going to be gone. Christmas tree shops is reorganizing, so I guess we can still go there. But I mean, my God, you know, Halloween gifts. Like, is the Dollar Tree store outdone in the Christmas tree shops? Is that what's going on here? I was actually shocked that the Christmas tree um, uh, stores were were uh, filing for Chapter Eleven. They're restructuring. They're uh, they'll be around, uh, but and but they're closing up to ten stores. Uh, hopefully, none in Massachusetts. We'll see. We seem very uh, we seem like super fans of of Christmas tree shops. Absolutely, I mean, chintzy summertime um, stuff. No better place to get it. <laughs> but um, but also I didn't also realize that Christmas tree shop at one time was owned by had been sold to Bed Bath and Beyond. Yeah, at one I didn't point. know that either. Um, and um, but yeah, you'd think that um, you know, when in an era of high inflation, uh, that consumers would flock to discount to stores with discounted merchandise, right? Um, but I, I wonder if they're, uh, you know, maybe they they've had maybe it's harder to get uh, to sort. I mean, it seems like the shelves they're, they are the shelves are emptier, so maybe it's been harder to get um, discounted goods or goods in general because of supply chain issues. Who knows? But it, you, it was a bit of a shocker. Did you read the story that the MAGA fans, Make America Great Again fans, are thrilled? with the troubles bed and bath are having. And it's because two years ago they stopped selling uh, uh, Mr. Pillow's products that lunatic Mike Lindell, who uh, really is out there, I should say. He's a big insurrection. You know, the election oh, yeah. was stolen thing. Totally off his rocker. And they are uh, they are uh, happy. So they're- I'm not have- surprised about Bed Bath and Beyond closing. I you know I'm not surprised about that. I've been I mean, in a have- huge Bed and Bath and Beyond when I was the only person yeah. in the whole damn store. And yeah, it wasn't. They didn't have many bargains, as I recall. Well, correct. Well, okay. so you can buy so much stuff on Amazon. We right? hope the exactly. workers do okay though. We're- and Wayfair. Um, and so uh, there were a lot of. I mean, I, I don't think there are that many stores left. Um, I, I think that they've been closing. Shirley, um, thank you very much. And thank Thanks you for sitting me. through our pledge. We appreciate that. We've been talking with Boston Globe business columnist Shirley Young. Up next, we're going to talk with affordable housing. Bruce Marks, CEO of Neighborhood Assistance Corporation, tell you about how you can get a house without going broke. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. 
I'm Jim Browdy, head on Boston Public Radio. A legendary housing advocate Bruce Marks explains a new mapping project where you'll soon be able to see who owns the land in your neighborhood, including those homes owned by big corporations. Plus, he'll talk about how lower-income Americans can achieve home ownership. Then Music Worcester's artist-in-residence, Vijay Gupta, will be here. He'll perform a movement from Bach on his violin, and he'll share details on his upcoming showcase with a songwriting program where people incarcerated at Worcester County Jails debuted their musical works. I'm Marjorie Egan in a Rhode Island church, a stained glass window depicts a unique and realistic dark-skinned Jesus. The Reverends Iron Monroe and Emma Price will discuss the historical significance, plus a California panel calling for billions in reparations for descendants of slaves. We'll open the lines to take your calls and texts at 877-301-8970. Why, oh why, did Tom Brady appear on Kentucky Derby broadcasts comparing himself to Secretariat? All that ahead on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Jim Browdy, I am Marjorie Egan. This is hour number two of Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Hello again, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. We're at the library tomorrow and Friday. Tomorrow, Keith Lockhart from the Boston Pops joins us and John King from CNN. And Friday at the library, an hour of Ask the Mayor with Michelle Wu. Joining us now in Studio 3 is Bruce Marks. Bruce is a housing activist, CEO of the Neighborhood Assistance Corporation of America, a nonprofit home ownership organization. It's based in JP, but has a presence throughout the country. And a couple of years ago, he was, what were you, Bostonian? What were you, Bostonian of the Year or something in the Boston Globe? Absolutely. Okay, absolutely. I didn't mean absolutely. It was a yes or no question. Yes, it was yes Bruce, or no. Bruce, it's great to 2007. see you. How are you, Bruce? I'm great, Jim. Great yeah. to see you. Great to see you, Marjorie. Yes, yeah, great to see you too, Bruce. And congratulations, not only in Bostonia of the Year, but all the work you've been doing in that documentary I saw about you down in Alabama, Louisiana, Georgia, and Texas, which is really very exciting. We'll talk about that later. But first, for people who don't understand what you do, uh, Tell us about the Neighborhood Assistance Corporation of America, NACA, and how you manage to get people mortgages. Um, uh, it is great to be here. Thanks, guys. Um, look, uh, we are a nonprofit uh, uh, home ownership advocacy organization. We're the largest HUD-certified counseling agency in the country. We do 30% of the counseling in the country, and we provide the best mortgage in America. So we overcome the four major ro- roadblocks to affordable home ownership. One is tough to save. So the, the you know, NACA solution is no down payment, no closing costs. Uh, restrictive underwriting. The NACA solution, never consider one's credit score. Look at payments that they control uh, focusing on the last 12 months. Number three, unaffordable terms. The NACA solution, a fixed rate. So today's rate for a 30-year is 5.5. For a 20-year, it's 5%. And lastly, you deal with you know, you know, racism, discrimination, and NACA solution is you qualify people where they become a desirable customer for the banks, for the real estate agents, and sellers. We've done over 75,000 mortgages. We have a foreclosure rate of 0.00012, about one-hundredth of 1%. And 93% of our home buyers are people of color. And the money, it's what, roughly $20 billion, bucks, yes. $15 billion of which Bank of America, from what I understand. Yes. You know, Bruce, I ask you this every time you're here. Bruce and I have known each other forever. We used to work together yeah. in a former life. Uh, no down payment, no closing costs, yeah. no credit rating, Incredible. and a default rate of practically zero. I, I, I don't get it. What do you do with a prospective homeowner that makes them the kind of homeowner despite the absence of those traditional things that causes virtually none of them to default on loans? Well, because it's really respect for the home buyers. 
So we put them through the counseling. So we do the financial management counseling. So it's comprehensive. But the fact of the matter is, when you look at it, what built the white middle class after World War II? It was the no down payment VA mortgage. Mm-hmm. Right. So the concept is not new, but we put people through that counseling where they can you know, know where they're spending their money and they can adjust their spending. And then you, know, you provide a mortgage. So you have this, this real benefit at the end of the process. And that's what is the, you know, the success. But the secret sauce is the underwriting where you don't look at someone's credit score, you look at the payments that they control, and it get, we get the job done. And, and, I've all, and Bruce, explain to people how you convince lenders to go for this, this unusual arrangement. I'll tell you how you convince <laughs> lenders to do it. I've, I've been there. I think convince is a euphemism. Okay. But go ahead, Bruce. Let's hear what you have to say. So, you know, in the past, and we still go after them, uh, you know, we engage in what we call nonviolent bank terrorism. Yeah. And when That's you great. do that, you, that you, you hold the decision makers personally accountable. And, you know, that means you go to their homes. That means, you know, we have three and a half million members. So our members are the ones who clean the houses of the rich, are the, the security guards for the rich. Uh, so we can get into their bubble. And we hold them personally accountable in a nonviolent way. And we get the job done. But with Bank of America, it's on the business side. So we're not on the nonprofit side of them. We're on the business side. So it makes business sense for them to work with us because the foreclosures are virtually nil. And we get people through the process who the bank cannot attract. People don't trust the banks, whether, you know, across the board. Well, give us an example of an instance where you needed to engage in some nonviolent terrorism to get your point across. So, so we were doing, a, you know, an event. We do these events with thousands of people. So we were doing it in Stanford during uh, the mortgage crisis. So, you know, Jamie Dimon, you know, head of Chase, who mm-hmm. does not wasn't working with us, wasn't helping uh, the homeowners at risk of um, foreclosure. So he lives in uh, a number of homes. It's these mansions on top of a hill. Uh, outside of Stanford, Connecticut, but he's on a lake. But he has a wire fence around his whole, all of his, all of his properties. So we were going to have thousands of people go to, uh, you know, uh, to go to his house, his mansions, and then we're going to do an amphibious assault onto his property. So we bought these rafts, and you know, two days this before is like the, the Sopranos, action, by the way. But go ahead. That's so, right. So two, two days before we're going to do the action, we're there with about 25 of us bearing the rafts. And we had loudspeakers there. So we're going to do an amphibious assault onto his property. But his uh, security guards come. And it turns out, you know, our members and our staff are much bigger and meaner than his uh, security guards. So we chase his uh, security guards away from the property. And he settles uh, that afternoon the next day. Okay. So I we're tra- love that story. <laughs> we're talking. Well, you don't love people going to people's homes. but Well, that's only when you do it. Jim. Okay, fine. Thank you. It, I've done story. it with Bruce, by the way, a long time <laughs> yes. ago. Bruce, you know, you're in the mortgage business, and that's where NACA. And by the way, if you want more information on any of this, NACA.com, N-A-C-A.com is how I'll find out. Mm-hmm. You're in the mortgage business, and that's where what your claim to fame is, your organization. But you and I were talking today. I was stunned. You are now building modular homes uh, in conjunction with the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, yes. and in Lima, Ohio, wherever that is. Yes. What are you doing exactly? So, so as we talked about, we have been the disruptive force in the mortgage side, saying this is how you should do lending. We want to be and are becoming the disruptive force on the home ownership 
on the new construction side. So what we're saying is that, and you know, I was just sh- showing you showing you pictures, Jim. They're quite nice. Where quite you nice. can build housing, factory build, prefab housing, beautiful housing, at about eighty five dollars a square foot. As compared wow. to what is the wow. typical oh, square foot price, as for... opposed to really one hundred eighty and and two hundred dollars a square foot out there. So that means for a twelve hundred square foot home. You can get it built, and then you add the cost for the foundation at about $110,000. But we call it the $1 program because what happens is that the city, the town that owns all these tax foreclosed homes, you know, properties, vacant lots, they sell the vacant lot to a home buyer for $1. And then we finance through Bank of America, through that mortgage, Best in America Mortgage, that the new construction. And what it is is that these are beautiful homes. They're better than if you do stick-built stick homes. So you're talking about a mortgage payment of about $700 for a beautiful 12 to 1,300-square-foot home, and it saves 75% of the energy costs because yeah. these are structural insulated panels. They're beautiful. How many have you built so far? Uh, we have built one so far. One. And as a model that we're doing, and but but we expect to be building five to a five hundred to a thousand at least a year on this. You know, so it's taking off. One of the things I I, I was going to say I learned this morning, but I'm not even sure it's true. But you'll explain to me. It, it, I, it one of the pieces about your work suggests that uh, Section Eight vouchers, which I'm sure most listeners have heard about, and we mostly know them as rental assistance vouchers, yes. can under certain circumstances be converted. So that the voucher can be used for a mortgage payment? Is that what it is? Absolutely. So what you do is what – Is that uh, a matter of right or th- does that have to be authorized by a governmental entity? How does that work? How does that happen? So we are working with housing authorities around the country. So what we are doing is we call it the hot PHA, home ownership through public housing assistance. So we take the payment standard, which you know in Boston is over $3,000 a month for a three-bedroom. And we use that for the mortgage payment. And that means with our 20-year mortgage, which is at 5% now, that over 15 years that the housing authority pays the mortgage payment. And so it is an unbelievable program that's taking off. So for someone who has virtually no wealth, that means that in a few years and in 15 years, they're going to have a hundred or $200,000 in wealth, you know, Bruce, I, I've read stories about your. You go to Atlanta to do a housing introduction to potential homeowners. Ten thousand people show up, right. and they do this counseling. I read about you all over the country. You're based in JP. To my knowledge, you're not building these modular homes here. Uh, to my knowledge, there's not the the expanse of this mortgage thing here. Why is this not as big a deal in your hometown as it is in so many parts of the country? Well, because, you know, what we're saying is that we are eliminating the fees that go to the developers. So when you do the $1 program, you are eliminating, you know, the 25 to 50% developer fees that are out there. So, you know, what it is in Boston is that you've got the same old, same old players doing it. You have the nonprofit, you know, CDCs who do good work, but they're expensive. And they're, you know, they're bloated in a lot of ways on their costs. And you have the for-profit developers who are not building affordable homes. So we are the disruptors. And the problem is, 
you know, we've tried to work with the mayor. We've tried to work with. What has uh, tried to work with the mayor? Mean? Uh, we 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 have reached out to Mayor Wu. We, and you know, and there's no response. Really, you know, with with uh, Sheila Dillon who oversees their Her housing, housing person. You know, there is no response. You know, we reach out to the housing authorities, and we're not asking for any money. We're not asking for one dollar, not one penny. We said, here's a program that's working in Newark, in Lima, Ohio, you know, in Rockdale County, uh, Georgia, around the country. We can't get the response here because they're so used to dealing with the existing entities. They don't want to change. We'll talk well, to Mayor Will on Friday. We'll bring Absolutely. it up with her and see what she has to say. So, Bruce, before I go to the break, I want to read you a text. I've been in my home in Rhode Island for almost four years. I was really down on my luck with three teens, one with profound autism. But I stuck to the NACA program, did what they required. Not easy, but I got it done. I have an amazing mortgage with Bank of America, no PMI. My interest rate is 3.75. I'm in a beautiful four-bedroom colonial in Rhode Island, and I will be forever oh, grateful great. to NACA. I like that. <laughs> Uh, I have the best job in this country. You know, when, when I go through the airports and I go out there, people people stop me. So we, you, we, we save their homes. And we've done that for over half a million homeowners and home buyers. So I have the best job in this country. He has the best job, but unfortunately has one shirt. He's been wearing the same <laughs> shirt for about 30 years. NACA <laughs> financial predators beware. But he has one in red now, not just black. Okay. Absolutely. We're talking to Bruce Marks. Yes, he's the CEO of NACA. We're going to keep talking with him after this short pledge break. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And we're at the library tomorrow. We're speaking to the head of NACA, uh, NACA.com. That would be its CEO, Bruce Marks. So, Bruce Marks, I mentioned uh, before. Well, you want to so, say, wait, so, Bruce yeah, so, wants to say something, so, apparently. Oh, excuse me. So, so let me ask you one thing. So, look, everybody out there, I'm going to make a $150 contribution, but you should do it now because I, I didn't tell Jim and Marjorie I was going to do this because I remember when they were on the private radio, that they weren't on the public wasn't radio. private, it's called, oh, you mean like... Commercial. Yeah, commercial on, um, radio. You know, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. on uh, the commercial stations, yeah. and, you know, every, you know, they would be interrupted with a commercial all the time, and they couldn't get into depth and all that. So I'm doing a $150 contribution. Please, everybody, you, Bruce. Uh, you know, do it now to support Jim and Marjorie, because we don't want them going back to well, the commercial your, stations. Well, oh, finish what you That's said right. to me before. He said you either give 150 or he comes to your house <laughs> or to the Absolutely. lake on a raft. <laughs> Bruce, that's right. I still have you. those rafts. Thank you so much. I'm sure you do. Thank you, Bruce. Appreciate it. Thank so, you, guys. Um, you just mentioned inexplicably, because we have a real housing crisis around here, that you weren't getting much traction in Boston. Well, you're getting a lot of welcome down in Alabama, Louisiana, Georgia, Texas. You're going through a lot of the South. Uh, tell us what's happening down there. And this is what I saw. The little, was it a promotional thing? Was it a little documentary? What was that film I saw starring Bruce Marks? So, so what we did, Marjorie, is that you know we had a big event in Atlanta. We had over 12,000 people come. And then we and then we had the mayor of Hobson City, Mayor Mayor McCardle, and she came. She said, "You got to do this in the local communities, and in Alabama, and Mississippi, in those areas." So we said, "Okay, we will do that, but you have to organize." So they invited me down to uh, the Alabama 
uh, Black Mayor's Conference. They wanted to do this. So during the Martin Luther King holiday, we did 19 simultaneous events in the rural communities, in the Black Belt, in places that don't have the broadband, that don't have the, you know, Internet, that are really overlooked by the government and everybody out there. And the people were wonderful. And we followed through. And actually, they, there, there was a tornado in Selma. And we yes. actually had... Um, our satellite dishes there, so we were providing emergency assistance as well as doing the home buyer event. But you know, and that's where the new construction came from because you look at the, the at the communities; they need the new construction, they need the rehab out there. You know, Bruce, can we come back to Massachusetts? We had Peter Lynch on the show the other day, the legendary investor. Obviously, Magellan Fund of Fidelity, he is sort of the Warren Buffett of Massachusetts. And then some, and we talked about his work raising more than $100 million for Catholic schools. What we didn't have time to talk about was another piece of his life post-Fidelity through the Lynch Family Foundation, where they are funding uh, something that you are doing that I think is hugely important that should matter to everybody listening, this mapping project. Can you explain to people what it is and why it matters? Absolutely. So, so they they help fund um, the mapping of who owns Massachusetts. So, of the over two and a half million properties that are in Massachusetts, we know and we've mapped out who owns every one of them, and we know whether they're vacant. We know whether there are code violations, and who are the owners of each one. And one of the things that it shows shows a lot, but it but it shows who are the outside investors. Who are the multi-investors out there who are really going after these properties and buying properties, particularly in the minority communities, and renting them out with no intention of, uh, re- of selling them to home buyers? So they are destroying and stealing the dream of affordable home ownership. And then you can see the public housing out there that is really essential in the state owns 43,000 public housing out there that need, you know, the maintenance. So it really shows who owns Massachusetts, and it gives the tools to the, to the policymakers. So we showed this to Auditor Diane. Zoglio. Yes, yes. <laughs> Diana DeZoglio, yes. Diane Zoglio. We showed it to, to the Lieutenant Governor, Kim Driscoll. So, you know, this is a tool but not just for them, but for the community residents out there to give them the tools to see who owns the properties in their neighborhood. So what to do? Well, we had Jen McKim, who's a brilliant reporter on an investigative unit here, did a piece about exactly this in Springfield, about these corporations, you know, backed by the Blackstones of the world. I don't know if yes. hers were. Uh, what's the con- two things? What's the consequence of the fastest growing segment of owner ownership being private equity, these huge corporations? What's the impact? And you said you're laying out policy prescriptions, which are what? What should government be doing to ensure that uh, outside investors are not buying up the whole market? So what we've seen, and just to take a step back, when we, we know, because it's been documented, that there is the race, that racist appraisal policies out there, that, you know, the, that the appraisals for black homeowners and in the black communities are significantly lower for a comparable house in a, a white community. Mm-hmm. What, what does that mean? That provides the opportunity for these corporate investors, these predators, to come in and buy those properties at a below market value. And then instead of selling them, what they're doing is they're renting them out at extraordinary high uh, rents. And they control the market. 
and they are just huge. So what we're doing is we're sending out a mailing to over a quarter of a million tenants around the country to say you can be a homeowner. Because remember, the criteria that they go through to become a renter is almost equivalent to be a homeowner on and also to do the old-fashioned tenant organizing against the Blackstones, the invitation homes, these predator wealthy uh, hedge funds and investors out but what there. But what could the state do? You say you give them a policy prescription. Sure. Are you urging Beacon Hill? Can they prohibit these kinds of – can cities and town governments – can they prohibit these kinds of uh, purchases? What, absolutely. So what they can do is we believe that they can be the local statutes that says only a certain percentage of the properties in that area can be uh, – Absentee owned. Can be, can be absentee owned, owned mm-hmm. by these investors. I see. So we think on a local level you can do that. Clearly you can do that on a statewide level as well. Can people access this project? Is it available online if they want to check out the information themselves? Uh, you know, they should go – to our to our website, we're putting more and more information up on there. And yes, uh, as a tenant, you can uh, you know join the campaign to do the tenant organizing and to become homeowners. You know, taking on these predatory investors out there. Bruce Marks, you have an op-ed in the Boston Globe today talking about big banks. What'd you say? It has stopped the regulators from bailing out the wealthy. So I used to be Marjorie a bank regulator. That is incredible. I, I worked at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York in oh the domestic God. applications area. So I know how sleazy it is because, you know, people work there and that was uh, the revolving door where you would regulate these banks and then they would hire you. It was the revol- the revolving door. So I saw that. So it's not surprising that these regulators, they did not we're not on top of the crisis that happened with um, Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank or the New Republic. Secondly, NACA has um, $240,000 at Silicon Valley Bank. But we played by the rules because we kept it under the 250000 limit right. out there. So we said, you know, we the limit that the where FDIC yes. is guaranteed to reimburse you should you lose your uh, deposit. Right. And then we saw, you know, during the mortgage crisis, how so many home homeowners lost their homes because of the the theory of moral hazard that we don't want to encourage um, speculative investments. So what the op-ed piece says is says stop uh, bailing out the wealthy. That means that if you have a deposit at one of the banks and it's over the two hundred fifty thousand FDIC limit, you should not be insured because one, you're getting a higher return on that. So, you know, the people mm-hmm. who played by the rules are losing out. And secondly, we got to stop this stuff because what the regulators do is they blackmail working people. They say, if we don't bail out the wealthy, then what happens is we're going to have uh, a housing, you know, we're going to have a credit crunch. You know, Wall Street's not going to be happy. You know, we're going to have a spiraling financial crisis. But that's blackmail. So the yeah. fact of the matter is we need to say stop bailing out the wealthy. That's what the op-ed shows today that I wrote. And we, you know, and that we have to represent and play by the rules. And everybody needs to play by those rules. 
Hey, so if anybody wants to get one of those rafts, they go to NACA.com. Is that <laughs> yes, what they do? Absolutely. They can get one of those. And if, and, people and if you contribute out... now, you know, we will look at getting <laughs> you right. a raft. Okay? That's right. And Bruce, if people want to find out the rules of the road, how they get mortgages, whether they can get them here, et cetera, same thing, NACA.com, N-A-C-A.com. Right? Absolutely. Bruce, okay. great to see you. Hey, Bruce, congratulations. congratulations on your work. Thanks. Yeah, and thank and we'll you bring so this much. up with the mayor on Friday. I'm curious to know what her perspective is, too. Absolutely. Thanks so much. with Bruce Marks, who is CEO of the Neighborhood Assistance Corporation of America. That's NACA for short, and NACA.com is where you get all the information about NACA. Okay, thanks again, Bruce. After a quick pledge break, he's Music Wister's artist in residence. It's artist and community activist Vijay Gupta next, and he's going to play with us, for us on the violin. You're not going to want to miss that. You're not going to want to miss that. I'm boxing this up all terribly. Anyway, you're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie. And we're at the library tomorrow. Keith Lockhart, the conductor of the Boston Pops, will be joining us, among others. But we're joined now in Studio 3 by violinist Vijay Gupta. Vijay is the founder and artistic director of Street Symphony, creating musical experiences for people in reentry from homelessness, addiction, and incarceration in L.A. His work there and elsewhere ended up earning him a fellowship from the MacArthur Foundation, and most recently, He's become Music Worcester's Artist in Residence. He'll be playing this Wednesday at Mechanics Hall. For information, go to musicworcester.org. Vijay, it's a thrill to meet you. Thanks for being here. It's so wonderful to be with you. Thank you. Well, we're thrilled to have you as well. And before we hear anything about uh, Street Symphony and what's going on in Los Angeles, we want to hear all about what it means to be Music Worcester's Artist in Residence. Please tell us. Oh, it's such a delight. Well, you know, Worcester occupies a really special place in, of course, the American consciousness, but also in the consciousness of, you know, great American music. First of all, it's one of the most legendary acoustics in the world to play in Mechanics Hall and to think about the fact that Dvorak was there and John Philip Sousa was there and Charles Dickens was there. Uh, You know, the the city and that room in particular just just ekes of culture. But, you know, being the artist in residence for Music Worcester is a particular honor because this organization is so dedicated to being forward-facing when it comes to understanding the role of the arts in convening community, not just convening community, but creating new communities. Um, Part of my role at Music Worcester is to engage with various different community organizations, including people who are in reentry from incarceration in Worcester County, uh, people who are in, you know, reentry from uh, being sexually trafficked. um, and, And the role of making art with these communities and in these sacred spaces is not just a form of entertainment, 
lifeline, but it's a lifeline, right? It's the, you know, art can become a lifeline to articulate our highest selves. And when we articulate that highest self together, something magical happens. Well, you know, what is the magical thing? that Yesterday, I was at something called a Concert for the City at the mm-hmm. Boston Symphony Hall. Mm-hmm. Andres Nelson's uh, head conductor of the BSO, Keith Lockhart from the Boston Pops, Mayor Wu mm-hmm. played the piano. She was brilliant. And Andres Nelson's in his comments during and after talked, and he's talked on the show about it, about the healing impact mm-hmm. of music in the most difficult times. Is that part of the whole thing with you, Vijay? Well, listening is a healing act. Mm. Witnessing is a profoundly healing act, right? Because perhaps we are allowing ourselves to see one another um, with the pain and the darkness we carry, but we're also able to see ourselves as something which transcends that temporary condition, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what the healing is, right? That we're able to sit with the wound, give some light to it, and then move through it, move beyond it, and perhaps metabolize that wound into something that nourishes other people. And ourselves. So, so tell us, um, when you, I read how when you were growing up, your parents' family talked about music being sacred. Mm. And that's obviously carried over into what you're, you're doing now. So what did you mean? Um, by that? Certainly. Well, you know, I grew up in a, a household of Bengali immigrants. So my parents would, you know, be chanting in Sanskrit or they would be listening to the folk music of Bengal or the poetry of Rabindranath Tagore. But my dad also loved Rod Stewart and Julio Iglesias. <laughs> on, on my way to violin lessons in New York City, you know, we'd be listening to, you know, Leonard Bernstein's Carmen or Nathan Milstein play Bach. And on the way home, we'd listen to, you know, Rod Stewart. And, and what's so interesting is that for my parents, you know, I think they held this fragmentation of immigration inside them for their entire lives. But music was a chance for them to be, you know, it was it was a chance to to put on a different kind of identity, even for a moment, you know, and and to belong to America, this 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 place that they wanted to create and, and be a part of. But in the Hindu tradition that I grew up in, there's this word sadhana. And a sadhana is basically a daily worshipful practice. You might have a yoga sadhana or a running sadhana. I have a violin, a music sadhana. And it's this idea of showing up with one's full self um, as an act of worshipful practice. And that's what making music is for me, right? It's an act of that practice in one's solitude within one's own studio, um, but it's also offering that gift to the world. And when we offer that gift to the world, what we receive back is just profoundly, profoundly transformative. We're talking to Vijay Gupta. He's Music Worcester's artist in residence. I want to ask you what you're doing. I know you started, I think, the first concert was in March, and there's the thing uh, on Wednesday Mm -hmm. at Mechanics Hall. But I have to say, Marjorie and I have been on the radio for 25 years. No one has spoken as glowingly of of Worcester as you have in the last (laughs) couple of minutes, I should say. Hmm. So the new mayor of Worcester, Vijay Gupta. So tell us about some of the things uh, you're doing, some of the concerts you're giving with whom you're performing and that sort of thing, Vijay. On Wednesday, I'm performing uh, a program called When the Violin, which is based on a poem by the Sufi mystic Hafiz, uh, translated by the poet Daniel Ladinsky. And it's a poem um, that's been 
and set to music by the composer Rina Esmail. And Rina works between the Indian classical and Western classical traditions. And garlanding Rina's piece will be the D minor partita and C major sonata of Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, I'm also really, really thrilled to be performing the D minor partita alongside the world premiere of new choreography uh, by the dancer Yamini Kalluri. And Yamini is also dual trained in Kuchipudi Indian classical dance as well as the Martha Graham School. And, you know, we often forget as, as classically trained Western classical musicians that, you know, uh, everyone was dancing in Bach's time. You know, these, these pieces were pieces that, that people knew the steps to. They knew how a minuet went. The Saraban was this sensual dance that was so risque that the Pope banned it. You know, these, these, <laughs> these were radical, beautiful works of art. But the D minor partita, of course, ends with the Mount Everest for violinists, which is the Chacon. And the Chacon, you know, is either a, a tombeau for Bach's recently departed wife, Maria Barbara, who died in the year 1720, or it's a, it's a dance. And I think it's this beautiful metaphor of dancing through grief, which I think is kind of an amazing metaphor for life itself. But the, the crown jewel of this program on Wednesday is a collaboration with an organization called Opportunity. And Opportunity is a songwriting collective which goes goes into the Worcester County jails and creates songs with currently incarcerated men who are often led and convened by men in reentry. And so uh, interspersed with the C major sonata will be three new songs um, composed by men currently living in the Worcester County jail. And for the first time, this program is going to be live streamed into the Worcester County jail. And we're very lucky to have the sheriff of Worcester County, um, Lou Evangelides, who's going to be speaking um, at this concert. And, and you know, the, the sort of, the whole theme of this event is one of forgiveness. Hafiz's poem is about the transformative power of forgiveness and how a new song is birthed from our hearts when we're able to let go of our wounds. That's the metaphor of this program. So, Vijay, you're going to play a couple things for us. What are you going to play first? I would love to play for you an excerpt of Rina's piece, When the Violin. And um, this is a, a piece based on the, the, the words by Hafiz. When the violin can forgive the past, it starts singing. When the violin can stop worrying about the future, you will become such a drunk laughing nuisance that God <laughs> will then lean down and start combing you into her hair. When the violin can forgive every wound caused by others, the heart starts singing. DJ Gupta.
Totally beautiful night. That was the violin of Vijay Gupta. We're going to keep listening and talking to Vijay, who is a music Worcester artist in residence after this quick break. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy, Marjorie Egan. We're talking with music Worcester's artist in residence, violinist, self-described citizen artist, and MacArthur Genius Award recipient, Vijay Gupta, who will play again for us in a minute. Uh, Vijay, you are a founder and artistic director of something called Street Symphony. Uh, what is that? This is an organization I founded in 2010, which is dedicated to making music with and for people affected by homelessness in Los Angeles County. Um, We primarily play in Skid Row, which is the epicenter of the crisis of homelessness in America today. But Skid Row is also America's largest reentry zone. On on any given night, uh, upwards of 5,000 people might be sleeping on the streets of downtown Los Angeles. But Skid Row is also the place where there's the largest concentration of service providers, reentry clinics, 12-step recovery shelters, and Street Symphony has partnered with these providers to not only make music as a, as a performance, but also to lead weekly songwriting workshops. And these workshops are convened by master teaching artists from the LA Master Chorale, the LA Philharmonic. Um, and so after a, a cycle of teaching artistry workshops, we might be creating a new song, which will then be woven into Handel's Messiah or a cantata of Bach performed for the community and then performed for a public at large. Um, this is a project which actually emerged from a relationship I had with a man named Nathaniel Anthony yes. Ayers. Yeah. Tell us about him. Yeah, Nathaniel was the subject of a beautiful book called The Soloist, which was turned into a film. And Nathaniel was a Juilliard-trained double bass player. In his junior year, he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. And Nathaniel was was treated um, at Bellevue Hospital with shock therapy and Thorazine and handcuffs. And you know, music was his saving grace. But when he was released from Bellevue, Nathaniel was kind of a, a, a shell of himself. And music brought him back to life, even in the course of being unhoused, living on the streets of Los Angeles. And Nathaniel was kind of my guide to Skid Row. At the time, I was a member of the LA Philharmonic. I had just joined the orchestra. And um, I started playing for Nathaniel, and I wanted to play for more people like him. So he was the beginning of that journey for did me. Did you join at 19? Is that what I read? I did join that the is, What took so long, Vijay? I mean, really, what the <laughs> hell were you doing? You know, speaking of what the hell were you doing, we're talking to Vijay Gupta, who is Worcester's 2023 artist in residence, and we're going to talk about some of the other work, concerts he's doing in there. You can get tickets for all of them at musicworcester.org. I don't want to psychoanalyze you, but let me psychoanalyze you for a second. <laughs> I read a story. Marjorie and I read a story about how you're a kid. You're playing at Carnegie Hall. Mm. How old were you then? I must have been seven, six seven, or seven. Seven, of course. Okay. <laughs> and then shortly thereafter, you played, if not the next day, mm. at a uh, chemo uh, yeah. ward for kids. That's right. And it, it sounds to me, from having read a lot about you, that that may have been a formative experience Absolutely. for a little boy. Yeah. Tell us why. That was sort of stewarded by a really... Uh, charming, demanding, acerbic teacher I had named Louise Behrend. And Miss Behrend was one of the first women to teach at the pre-college program at Juilliard. And she was a champion of the Suzuki method. And, you know, for for us, for this group of young kids, it must have been hundreds of us that went to Carnegie Hall to perform, you know, her lesson to us was that, it, you know, 
this is just one place where you perform. The performance is just the tip of the iceberg. The real work is the practice. And for whom do you play and to what end? And so she embedded this lesson in us that music belongs to everyone. Everyone can be touched by it. And um, I think that was very much the seed of Street Symphony. Pretty beautiful story. Well, you know, I I know, Vijay, you at one point were studying to be a physician. You didn't (laughs) do it. Um, But you talked about uh, in that study the impact of music on the brain. Mm. So tell us what you learned. Well, I was actually here in in Boston. I was an intern at a lab working under an amazing neuroscientist named Dr. Dennis Selko, who was working on Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease at the Harvard Institutes of Medicine. And that summer, I think I was 17, I I met a man named Gottfried Schlaug, who was still working at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And he's one of the leading researchers of music, the impact of music on the brain. And he's also himself the trained organist. And, you know, he was one of the first people who said to me, look, you know, the, the violin won't wait for you. You have to be a violinist. And I wish he had called my mother and, and told him, <laughs> told her that. Um, but you know, it, was, it was remarkable because he was doing these amazing studies with people who had become aphasic. They had lost the ability to speak because of an injury due to Alzheimer's disease or uh, a stroke or uh, an injury to the brain. And he would give them 70 or 80 hours of singing lessons. And then oh he did, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, fMRI scans and basically saw that the music was literally re- wiring the brains of his patients. Um, And these were studies that were happening in the early thousands. So uh, I I can't imagine where the research is now. Vijay Gupta, let's go back to Worcester for a couple Mm -hmm. of minutes. You're also doing something with the Worcester uh, Youth Orchestra, mm-hmm. from what I understand. What is that, and when is that happening? So I'm very excited to be performing with the Worcester Youth Orchestra on May 21st. This is actually part of the 75th anniversary of the Worcester Youth Orchestra. Um, and so I'm going to be performing the Vivaldi Concerto for four violins with three of the young musicians who are members of the Worcester Youth Orchestra. And leading up to that performance will also be um, several sort of coaching sessions with the young musicians. I'll be coaching some chamber music, working with the orchestra. So I'm incredibly excited, and that's also happening happening at Mechanics Hall. That's terrific. Again, tickets for all of these uh, concerts that Vijay is shepherding through is musicworcester.org. You know, you're so tight with Worcester now that you were the... <laughs> have you been to Coney Island Hot Dogs yet, uh, not, Vijay? Not Gupta? yet. Oh, I, I need to get the staff Trust to take me, me there. I'm not uh-huh. the expert on Worcester, but it's the finest of Worcester. <laughs> Check it out. The Chili Dog, it'll be on us. Uh-huh. You know, you Excellent. Know, Vijay, back to uh, classical music for a second. Mm. I think that a lot of us have the misconception that it is for, you know, the upper crust, Mm. uh, that everybody, you know, the Bach, Beethoven, that they were, as someone put it in my notes, calcified white guys. Mm. But in fact, you talk about how a lot of these composers were rebels in their time, revolutionaries in their time, Solzhenitsyn, the people that were fighting against the Russian regime, that Mm. kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. talk about that. I think it's important for us to remember that classical music is a convenient marketing term. You know, and it wasn't that way for Bach, who was forgotten for nearly 100 years after he died, for Mozart, who was buried in an unmarked grave, for Schubert, who died at 29, syphilitic, for Schumann, who died in an asylum suffering from schizophrenia. You know, this this music uh, is not always about pain and grief, but so often it comes from places of brokenness. And the the MO of, of these composers and what they were creating and how they were creating it so often reflected the communities that they came from. You know, I think Bach would have been astounded to know that his passions were, were being performed in concert halls when they were written for a community who would sing along with all the hymns, right? And so and it had, Handel's Messiah was never intended for a hall. It was intended for an orphan's hospital, um, 
So I think, you know, I, I'm, I, I love the historically informed performance practice movement where we play on gut strings and we play on with, with Baroque bows. I'm playing on a Baroque bow myself right now. You know, these instruments that recreate what it was like, how the instruments sounded in the 18th and 19th century. But I think we often forget the cultural and social context, which, of course, is very complicated and very nuanced. There were a lot of people who were excluded from that cultural place. But um, this music was always about creating community. And that's the aim that I think we're trying to capture again at, at Music Worcester. You know, our concerts are being made public and being made open to a public who has not often been welcomed to Mechanics Hall. And our concert on Wednesday is actually going to be made available not only via live stream to folks inside Worcester County Jail, but we're going out of our way to invite the families of folks who are currently incarcerated or who are in reentry and to, to create the concert hall into a place of welcome and hospitality. What else are you playing for us, uh, Vijay Gupta? Well, I would love to end with a piece by Johann Sebastian Bach. This is the Saraband from the Partida in D minor. Fabulous. Vijay Gupta, again, a Music Worcester's 2023 artist in residence. There are a whole host of concerts you heard about, just a couple. If you want to check any or all of them out, you go to musicworcester.org. This has been an absolute thrill. Congratulations on your work. Thank you so much. And it's so exciting what you're doing in Worcester and what you've done in Los Angeles. We've been speaking with Vijay Gupta, MacArthur Fellow, Music Worcester's 2023 Artist in Residence. He has a concert Wednesday night in Mechanics Hall. For more information on tickets, go to musicworcester.org. Thank you again, Vijay. That was really wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. You'll text me after you have the chili dog, correct? Absolutely. Okay, I'll be waiting. Thank you, DJ. I appreciate it. Coming up,
All revved up on Boston Public Radio, the Reverend Zion Monroe and Emmett Price will be next. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Trusted. Local. News. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, HD1 Boston, online at gbhnews.org. GBH News with NPR. What matters to you. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Marjorie Egan, Jim Bradley. We're at the library tomorrow with Keith Lockhart at the library on Friday with Mayor Wu. It's time now for All Revved Up on Boston Public Radio with the Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price III. Reverend Monroe is a syndicated religion columnist, Boston Voice for Detour's African American Heritage Trail. Reverend Price, founding pastor of the Community of Love Christian Fellowship, and also the inaugural dean of Africana Studies, Berkeley College of Music. Together, they host the terrific GBH All Revved Up podcast. Welcome to you both. Hey, thanks for having us back. Happy you know, Monday. Before we start, Emmett, I got to do a shout out to you. Uh, last Friday on the show, we had a couple of performers and a composer and a conductor from this brilliant opera, Omar, about a real-life figure who uh, uh, was an Islamic scholar, ripped out of his home in Africa, brought to the United States for decades of enslavement, during which time he wrote his his uh, uh, autobiography in Arabic. I mean, it was just unbelievable. But your interview with the famous of the two, I, I shouldn't say that the guy who's with David Abels is famous because he's done a lot of Jordan Peele's movies, scores, but you did, that interview you did with Rhiannon Giddens at GBH was so fabulous. I, mean, I watched it before they came in. It was just brilliant. It's online. People should check it out. And CRB is going to have an online version of oh, cool. Omar because it's sold out. Not version, yes. but Omar yeah. at some point yeah. in the future. But I just yeah. wanted to compliment yeah. you on a Thank fabulous you. interview. He, no, he was brilliant. I went to the last show yesterday. <laughs> oh, which you did? Was at three, yeah, What'd which you was think? at 3 o'clock. It, it was excellent. And then I went to the Q&A expecting Emmett. You weren't there, mm. but many of the actors were there. But one oh, of the great. things I learned, and, and you know, is that Africa was the cradle of monotheism from Judaism for Judaism before it hit Israel Islam before uh, Muhammad uh, returned to Mecca and uh, for Christianity before Apostle Paul spread the good news about, you know, Jesus as the, you know, as the, as the Christ here. It was just absolutely amazing. And I could see, I love the way Emmett talked about it because it had so many musical genres represented. Amazing. We talked Senegal. to the composer yeah. about it. It was amazing. Yeah, it was fabulous. But it was great. Emmett, and you, Emmett, you clean up well. <laughs> I was going to say that so, I'm glad you did instead, actually. So speaking of Jesus, the, the Christ, this is a fascinating story because I know we've taught you a lot, um, Irene, about about Christ being black. And yeah. uh, down in this church in Warren, Rhode Island, apparently it's been there for a while, uh, but there's a stained glass window featuring uh, Christ with um, Mary and Martha, two figures you see a lot in the New Testament, the Samaritan woman. Everybody's black. Uh, right. So um, what do you think, Irene? I, I, I loved it for so many reasons here, because, again, we're talking about 1877, which unfortunately really is the end of Reconstruction. But they thought, but these women here not only had good intentions, there, there was some naivete certainly on their 
part, but they broke away from their slaveholding family. The DeWolf, particularly as we know, you know, were big uh, enslavers, not only providing, uh, you know, ships to go to Africa and bring a cargo of Africans here, but also uh, in terms of what they had as in terms of their own plantation, these women really were agents of change. And what I like about this here was that, you know, they were progress. I know it's all relative, but they were progressive women before their time. They left a legacy, really, of social activism, racial in- inclusion, and also racial uh, um, uh, reconciliation here. That gospel story is important because that's that to me depicts them because in that gospel story, the women are the agents of change. Right. Samaritan women speaks to her community. Martha engages in service. Mary focused on intellectual pursuits. This was totally about this is a text of inclusion, but it's also in many ways a moment of atonement because Ruth Bourne, we don't know much about Gibbs. But, you know, this was a white woman born in Bristol, Rhode Island in mm-hmm. 1787. And, she, you know, and she married John DeWolf, you know, a, a wealthy family. But she was very active in the Episcopal Church. And what she she not only left them money, but really left them to me a kind of theological treatise about if you're moving forward, I leave something for you to, ex, you know, to think about. You know, uh, uh, I'm a naive question, Emmett, so don't uh, uh, ridicule me. Uh, one of the things, or, or you can if you want, one of the <laughs> things that they mention in this uh, Globe Rhode Island story is how few, if any, depictions there are in stained glass of uh, Jesus as being dark-skinned. And while, again, I'm the a-religious person in the group, but I've read a decent amount about this, and virtually everybody who's a scholar, concludes that, yes, he was. Yeah, because where he so, was from. Exactly. So right? what's the, what's yeah. the, is the holdup as obvious as it appears? Is that why there's so what, few depictions like this? There's a historical and a global holdup, um, to, to, to use your terminology, before the 13th century and the Renaissance in art, all depictions of uh, Jesus and the divine, the and disciples. I mean, everybody right. were of dark. olive-colored skin. They Is were dark so? skin. Yeah. yeah, I mean, in, yeah. in all of the in all of the iconography, whether it's you know you know Greek or Turkish, whether it's Coptic, right. all of those iconographies were you know until the Renaissance. Brown uh, and black when, people. When you got yeah. you know kind of the whitewashing of Christianity. So you know. Um, this depiction of the United States is interesting because of the conflation of, of colonialism with Christianity. That's right. um, and, and as much as Irene, you know, offers her 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 um, hermeneutics, her aunt, her, aunt, <laughs> well, her honoring of these white women, I'm not so sure um, because you know uh, a number of these women um, were uh, patrons and donated to the American Colonization yeah, Society, that. and that's the society that actually sent a lot of um, you know. Black folks who were originally from the continent of Africa to uh, Liberia um, and and kind of you know set up a colony, yeah. You know, but but colony, Emmett yeah. though, but 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 again, we got to look at where people are at now. So I'm not I'm I'm not erasing the, the history in which they're born into and have even participated. But we gotta we gotta remember there's a pivot here that these are women that broke away from their slaveholding family. I, in terms of not only ideology, but also action. 
And what they also did here is that what it's what they did with it was it's something we talk about today. You know, what do you do with your white privilege? How are you being a disruptor? How are you being able to develop enough trust to actually bring up and, and, and hold that truth and bring about change here? And so, sure, they certainly um, supported the African Colonization Society. Unfortunately, they saw it as a form of reparation, not understanding the tentacles of colonization. But you, if you, but you look at this juxtaposed to the particular text that they are depicting in the stained glass windows, talks about that they recognize an, or, or the original sin, and they're trying to address it within a context at a time now that reconstruction is coming to an end. So no, I'm not lauding them, but I'm trying to give them their kudos for what they're able to do within a vice. I, I'm going to uh, give uh, Irene the uh, the new title <laughs> of the great apologist. Uh, <laughs> well, it's a reversal. Uh, I love it. Okay. I love it. Well, you know what it is, though? So by him doing this is that it's, it's erasing women's history. So I can, oh, you know, so I can call this mansplaining <laughs> because it's, 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 it's change comes incrementally. And, you know, when we say that a picture says more than a thousand words, See, the thing is, is that if you're if you are worshiping at St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Rhode Island, you can't ignore that stained glass window, along with all the others that you have white images. By the way, can I I interrupt here? We got a text just now from a friend of ours, a friend of mine, Marjorie's, who says there's a black. I checked it out, too. There's a black Madonna in stained glass at St. John's Episcopal Church in JP. In JP, that's yeah. right. Yeah, I was mm-hmm. there right. either. And I yeah. was at St. John's last week. And mm-hmm. so, and they're very proud of it. But I told I told the church here because they had invited me for uh, to talk about reparations here, is that that's a start. And and, and it is for a, 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 an, a, a, a congregation that even today is still predominantly white. You know, speaking of, I'm sorry, God, Margaret. I'm just going to say, it's also interesting, as you say, Irene, that there were Mary and Martha and the Samaritan woman, the one that uh, said she had no husband, and then Christ says, well, you have, you've had five husbands. So I thought that, <laughs> I thought that putting her in there was pretty good because, you know, about the Catholics with their husband's thing. And right. I thought that it was... Says that they see, as I said last week, they don't see her as a hoe. They understand, <laughs> they understand the, yes, yes, they, un- they understand the complexity and context of women's lives. So, right. and here, hey, Marjorie, I thought you were going to say that that was Jesus mansplaining. Okay. <laughs> so, Emmett, speaking of... Could have been. Uh, could have been. Irene just threw... Poor Martha slaving away there, waiting on everybody. Yeah. Irene yeah. just threw reparations into the conversation. And I have to say, I was sort of stunned by a report I read on a commission uh, out of California, which appears to have the support of the political infrastructure in the state recommending that $1.2 million uh, uh, be given, preferably in cash, not educational aid, not anything else, in cash to descendants of uh, uh, slaves from Africa. And again, as I say, it appears to be something, even though it costs hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, that has... Some serious political sport out there. And the context, by the way, is those discussions. We had the uh, the chair and a student member of the Boston Reparations Committee in studio about a month or so ago. This sort of uh, lays the foundation and sets a bar for lots of other discussions. Does it not there, Emmett? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, this is very interesting because you have a, a state in California that is facing a deficit, a pretty significant deficit. And, and yet, you know, this commission is looking at how do you determine uh, the valuation of years of, you know, systemic racism, prejudice, you know, discrimination. Uh, I, I've been following this quite quick, uh, closely because, uh, you know, my parents uh, have, have lived in California, um, my goodness, probably, you know, almost, you know, probably 50 something years and um, and they would be eligible you know, for some. And then even myself, even though I left the, the state, you know, in my 20s, um, I would be eligible because of the police brutality and, and some of the, the Mass discrimination. Yeah. So so it's very interesting to think about how they're pursuing, but also how they're creating these buckets of of of, of uh, criteria by which you would qualify. That's really yeah. important, by the yeah. way. They didn't just yeah. come up with a number out of the blue. Right. They did calculations. Some people may question yeah. the calculations, right. but they did calculations of all different kinds of harm, and that's how they came up yeah. with a number. Yeah. I assume yeah. you're uh, yeah. a little cynical yeah. about this. Of course Irene. I am. Of course I, she I doesn't want me I to really... get my check. That's <laughs> <all>. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Emmett, I'm going to make sure that if they do follow through, that you you and your family be one of the first. Okay, <laughs> Because the farm that this family have in Virginia, we're still waiting for mm -hmm. the our reparation. But listen, we we've ha we constantly have conversations about reparations, Jim. You know, we 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 talk about you know the the Tulsa survivors who, by the way, uh, they're still alive. No reparations to Black Wall Street. We can do it because we see we have seen Germans you know, do reparations to Jews, Japanese Americans have certainly. Listen, 2019 Evanston came up, laid the groundwork of the way in which that they would provide reparations would be to descendants of enslaved, of the enslaved by using tax revenues from the marijuana business. Then for housing assistance, right? I interviewed the woman right. who's running mm -hmm. it. That's 10 right. million bucks. They appropriated right. real dollars. Yeah. And then then and then of course Cambridge didn't want to be left out, you know, and then Cambridge said, well let us jump in. And they talked about well we would have uh reparations, you know, doing the same thing. Uh John Connie's God bless his soul from 1987 to 2017 to the year he died, talk, tried to pass the reparation bill here. We talk about it. We do no actions about it. You give us a glimmer of hope. Well, here. I have to say, with all due respect, when you say no actions, this is the first president in American history who has supported anything on reparations in, as president, including the formation of a commission. There has been a structure put in place and a commission in Boston. I know the proof is in the bottom line, obviously. In the money. But there, is, the money. But there is some movement. Evanson, as you say, a California commission vote, and it's, at least an infrastructure set up here it's, in Boston. It's, no? Listen, no, it's kicking the look. It's kicking the, the, the ball down, you know, down the field here. This is a lot of lip service. There's a level now at this point that a number of us are just fatigued by it because I, I think that a, a, an easy example and even could placate for a moment was to give Viola Fletcher 109 from um, uh, Tulsa. Tulsa uh, yeah. Uh, reparations and her brother and then the, the other remaining three. This is just three people. And what someone did was a New York philanthropist gifted them with a million dollars. You know, again, we like to talk about it. It is lip service. But come on, truth be told, this is this is not going to happen. This is really not going to happen. Well, you know, my understanding is, uh, you may be right, uh, that Gavin Newsom is a pretty powerful character out there in California, the governor, 
it has been supportive of this commission. It is serious money. I mean, it is huge money uh, that they're talking about. Roughly, I think the budget out there is something like three hundred billion a year, and they're talking mm-hmm. about hundreds of billions of dollars. Right, right. But it, but it is. Uh, uh, a, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, a government that is that's cash strapped. But listen, I, I, this is how I I will will give me hope, Emmett. When you get your check, I knew you were going to say. Remember that. me. <laughs> oh, and as a matter of fact, you owe me some money from the last time um, we went to, to Dunkin' Donuts. You know, by the way, unfortunately, because we're in pledge, we're short on time. We got to save this topic about more people are praying in their car. I know. They're praying in a, well, at a house of worship. You, but, you, you have to pray uh, being a driver in Massachusetts. That's a good line. Thank drive, you. They're the worst drivers. And there's a term I just want to say, Jim. Yeah. It's called mass hole. This is true to describe mass drivers. And to this day, I still am confused. Do you turn on yellow? Do you turn on red? And what is the rotary about? How do you enter the rotary? We're the only state, I think, that has rotaries. Those are que- existential <laughs> okay. questions we will existential get to next week. We will get to Are you next guys time. working on a podcast or is there a new yes. one coming? What is it? We are. We're talking about the... Uh, the uh, the situation in New York on the subway. The oh my God! Michael oh, Jackson yeah. impersonator. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And the question is, wh- when is it? When are you a good Samaritan, or when are you just a murderer? That's that, that's the title I want Emmett to use, but he won't. Well, you know, I'd like. We should talk about that next week. In addition, when's the podcast happening? Tonight. Okay. Great. Good to see you both. We'll be right. waiting. Good to see you. Thank be well. Okay. Bye. Thank you very much. Sorry it was short this week with Pledge. We've been speaking with Irene Monroe and Emmett G. Price III. Reverend Irene Monroe is a syndicated religion columnist in the Boston Voice for Detours African American Heritage Trail. Emmett G. Price III is founding pastor of Community of Love Christian Fellowship in Austin, the inaugural dean of Africana Studies at Berkeley College of Music as well. And they host GBH is all revved up podcast, and they're dropping a new one. I think it's on. You'll have it by tomorrow. Is it Wednesday? I think he said the, they said they tonight. So I guess tomorrow. Yeah, on the chokehold that killed the Michael Jackson impersonator in a New York City subway. Okay, coming up, we're going to open the lines to discuss one of my favorite things ever. Secretary Tom Brady made a video for NBC Ridiculous comparing video. himself to Secretariat. We want to ask you two things. What is your relationship with the Super Horse Secretariat? No, mine is deep in my heart. And Jim wants to ask, well, actually he wants to offer tips on how you two can hype yourself up. No, I do not. Like like Brady has done and like Jim has attempted to do on more occasions than we care to remark on. That's next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. We're at the library tomorrow. Keith Lockhart is a month from the Boston Pops among the people who's going to join us. By the way, I want you to know, just for context, if I mention a topic at our morning meeting that I want to talk about, and we did it 11 years ago, Marjorie says, we did that 11 years ago. <laughs> we do secretary like every week on this show. But no, because Marjorie, excuse me, Marjorie. But no, because, we don't. excuse me, because Marjorie's into it, we're going to do it again. So sometimes, uh, here's the deal uh, Marjorie heard a familiar voice, apparently, on NBC this weekend. Speaking of a familiar Kentucky Derby winning racehorse. There are a lot of goats out there in history. I'll always be honored to have my name mentioned with the best to ever do it. But I think I speak for all of us when I say we all kind of look at him a little differently. 
Churchill Downs on this first Saturday in May. You might be laughing or wondering if I'm just putting you on. But I'm actually kind of serious because when it comes to all time, Secretariat stands alone. That is rather <laughs> odd, I should say the least. So we have a bunch of questions for you. You can either text or call yeah. at 877-301-8970. The obvious question, which we've done once or twice before, is the 50th anniversary of the running in the Triple Crown of the greatest horse that ever lived. By the way, all his records stand, this is Secretariat, uh, uh, 50 years later. Marjorie wants to talk about 50 Secretariat. 50 years later. I want to well, talk about, all, excuse me. I have a few me. things I need to say, Jim. Well, can, not yet. I want to say, what kind of person, even if you are arguably the greatest quarterback ever, talks about yourself <laughs> as the greatest quarterback ever and compares yourself to Secretariat? I mean, it was, it was unreal. <laughs> and, and I know what Marjorie's going to say. Well, Jim, you have no problem doing that. Well, maybe I don't, Marjorie. But what I want to know, uh, Marjorie again, Secretariat, what I want to know yeah. is, do you have a hard time, even if you've done wonderful things in your life, do you not have a hard time engaging in self-praise about your, your – I, I, we, we make an exception yeah. during pledge. We do read wonderful comments That's from right. listeners. Even I don't do that the rest of the year. I was – the Brady thing was so cringeworthy was in my odd. opinion. 877-301-897. Now, Marjorie's going to say 400 things about Secretary. Go ahead. Well, I just want to say Brady is taking a lot of grief about this whole situation. Good. People are making uh, make, making fun of him. Shame on NBC for making this piece about Tom Brady in any way. If you're going to salute a horse, make your piece about the horse. Um, somebody wrote, somebody else said, sounds like this egotist was more than saluting, was more saluting himself. than the was. Horse. It went on and on and on. But I just want to say a few things before I begin. Please. First of all, thank you to my co-workers for my secretariat mug. It has a place of distinction on my mantelpiece in my living How room. How about Paul from Worcester? Handcrafted Paul, that damn thing chance? there. Yeah. I was going to get to Paul from Worcester. What do you do? Who handcrafted me secretariat coasters. Yeah. And I have only special people can put their drinks on my secretariat coasters. That's nice. When I have very important people over, then I get up the secretariat coasters the rest of the time. They are also up in the mantelpiece. Yeah. Okay, good. And um, thank you for uh, an unnamed anonymous friend of mine who got me a moving like a tremendous machine banner, which I hang in as many rooms as I possibly can or the years, Jim. And by the way, our coworker Zoe sent me a picture of the moving like a tremendous machine little souvenir souvenir hut that From they the have Derby? down at Kentucky, Kentucky Derby where they also have a bigger than life size sculpture, Jim. Are you just talking until two o'clock or what's happening here? Action. What are we doing? No, we're gonna get a little sound here. Yeah. To get everybody in the mood. What's the this sound is from, of? This is this is from the t- sound that from the Marjorie's 2010 movie about secret. I do have hiccups. I'm sorry yeah. about Secretariat, where they were talking about now the Secretariat after losing in the Wood Memorial because of course he had a, a sore tooth. Then he went on to this win the endless. Kentucky Derby. Go ahead. Yeah. Then he went on to win the Preakness. Okay. Then he went on to win the Belmont by 31 lengths. Never been done. Terrific Fastest time of like. any horse. You know oh most athletes. God. The, the records fall and they fall. Yeah, Not true with do, Secretariat. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, to get everyone in the mood, here is a little sound from the movie t- remarking on Secretariat coming around the last turn in the yeah. Belmont. Entering the final turn, Secretariat is looking like a tremendous machine. That's impossible. Why would you play the movie version rather than the real version? Okay, can you explain I, that to me? Well, we can play the real version, okay, too. Okay, here's the real I version. I can't get enough, as you know. Secretariat holding on to a large lead. Dan is second, and then it's a long way back to Mike Allen and twice a print. They're on the turn. It's Secretariat is blazing along. The first three quarters of a mile in 109 and four fifths. 
the carrot is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. Okay, let's play that four or five hundred times more before two o'clock. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seven. There are two questions on the table. Make Marjorie happy and say something great about Secretariat. What I'm interested in is. Can you imagine talking about yourself, even if Uh you've done great things, the way Brady talks? Here's another piece of this. Here is uh, Brady making another connection between himself. Again, if somebody else got on, let me be clear about this. If an announcer said, you know, there are two goats here. There's Brady at the whatever, the Kentucky Derby, and there's, of course, the greatest horse ever. Two goats, greatest of all time. But for Brady to be saying, that's like Secretariat saying it. Secretariat (laughs) wouldn't say it. Here is uh, is a little more from Brady's. By the way, he can't even read terribly well. Here is Here's the Brady thing. Maybe Secretariat would have become Secretariat even if he had a different owner, a different trainer, a different jockey. And maybe I would have found my way into a oh lineup my God. even if my good buddy Drew Bledsoe didn't get hurt that day on the field. But I do know the way it worked out for both of us. Felt a lot like fate. Both of us, him and Secretariat. <laughs> <laughs> By the owner was a penny woman who went to Smith's, by the way, didn't she? Penny, penny Chattery. Penny yes. Chattery, right. It's sorry. a great movie. and It's a great movie God. for the kids. It's a Disney okay, movie. Fine. You can watch it and find out everything okay, you want to know about Secretary. Let's give the number here. Can we give the number? Yes, 877-301-8970. If you want to weigh in on your ardor, if you share mine for Secretariat, or uh, how you feel about uh, Tom Brady trying to steal some of the thunder from Secretariat didn't on it, the 50th. It wasn't, didn't it make you cringe when you're, I mean, I, Brady's a great quarterback. No, didn't it make you cringe when he's talking about him? himself and comparing himself to the greatest horse who ever which or who ever lived yeah it, it was odd and it made you wonder how did this happen did 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 Brady i wrote him a check That's approach what... the people at nbc and say i want to do an ode and homage i think nbc approached him and said here's a million dollars or something i don't know i don't know and it did make you think about brady's broadcast career remember he's gonna have a big broadcast career 375 million dollars yeah 375 million dollars well, that's a yeah, big piece of change years, with fox yeah. to be a broadcaster on the sports show so it makes you wonder about that as well but anyway this is what we're doing do you feel bad about brady what do you think about secretariat you can wax on Poetic. endlessly about the super horse of all time the number is 877-301-8970 quick quick pledge break we'll be right back Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Marjorie. And this, we're talking about the uh, Secretary 50th anniversary. This is where you read the text about Secretary in a minute, right. Marjorie. Sorry. 50th anniversary. And we're also talking about this rather cringeworthy video, two and a half or three minutes, that Tom Brady made, which, and again, he's probably the greatest quarterback ever. But to say it yourself and compare yourself to the greatest horse ever, to me, is really odd and troubling. Well, odd. You'd think he'd be comparing himself to other quarterbacks if you were going down that route. No, he shouldn't do that either. They should have okay. a third voice well, saying, here's Tom Brady and here's horse. the horse kind of thing. Or you know who could have done it? Mr. Ed could have done it. <laughs> Mr. Ed was talking horse on television about 90 years ago. <laughs> Sean from New Hampshire has a that? great point. What does he say? Brady is not like a horse. No, he's not. When he broke his leg, they did not shoot him. That's a very good and point. That's a very good Can we take remember. a call on this or is yes, he just going to talk the whole time? One more from Marianne from Beverly. Oh my God. Listen to this. 
question. Please. My husband and I watched the Secretariat movie last night after watching YouTube clips of Secretariat's historic Triple Crown win. And? I was 12 when he won. I and? still remember how exciting it was. Sure. A tremendous machine indeed. Wow. Marjorie, I'm with you. Can't get enough of Secretariat. Okay. Get on board. Jim. Okay, Susan in Reading, you are next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you very much for calling, Susan. We appreciate it. Hi. Hi, Mike Hi. I'm with Marjorie. Absolutely. Why, why are you with Marjorie? What's the deal? I, I was a huge fan of Secretariat when I was a kid, when he won. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was going through my horse phase, you know, I guess. And, sure. um, <laughs> and the thing, thing that I remember was he was all stretched out when he was running, and I was like, I wonder what his stride is. So I measured the hallway in my house where this I lived, and it was 28 long and then i learned later that <laughs> secretary started 24 feet long is that true and, uh, yeah that's and a great he, little factoid go ahead i know it's not cool and because I, I watched that you know video also of him running so fast oh, that's great it's blowing everyone away and i just <laughs> remember the hallway miles when i was a kid I have not seen the Tom Brady video, though, so I'll have to check that out. I wouldn't see it if I were you. Now, let me ask you something, Susan. As much as you admire Secretariat, how do you feel if your coworker was somebody in the media who every time she was asked, do you have an interesting idea for a segment on a show, <laughs> she holds up her Secretariat mug? What you, is that? That's troubling, right? Even though you're into uh, Obviously, I can tell it is. Susan, that was a great call. Thank you. How about that? Her hallway is 28 feet, which is almost the stride, the single stride. By the way, wasn't his heart like twice the twice, size of normal? I think horse? it was two and a half size. Is that incredible? Times, yeah. Well, that was the whole thing because yeah. the reason that the Belmont is much longer than the Preakness or the Kentucky Derby, so yeah. lots of people thought, well, he's got the speed for the two right. first races, yeah. but he doesn't have the stamina for the last one, and obviously he didn't have the stamina. And what he also did, which was unusual, yeah. he got faster every yeah. quarter. You know, most runners yeah, are slow slowing down. down. Yeah. He got faster yeah. every quarter, which is really neat. Ross says even Trump is more humble than Tom Brady. I'll tell you, that is not that far off. I mean, I could see Trump doing this, actually, comparing himself to Secretary. Elsa, you're in Boston. Welcome to the show. Hi, Elsa. What's up? Hi. Hi. I'm not at all surprised that Tom Brady is touting his own horn. I don't know if you remember, there's a horrible fire on Beacon Street. Two firefighters oh, of course. died. Um, yes, right. yes. I was there. But Tom Brady was a neighbor at the time. Marlboro not Street. on the radio. Yeah. Uh, uh, but anyway, got on the radio at the time and said, Whoops. What? Elsa, we lost you. What did we Brady say? Elsa. There were oh, photographs. I remember the photographs of Brady and Giselle. Bun- no, on their porch, I thought, or something. I thought he was on the roof. Maybe it was. Yeah. Elsa, we'll try to get back to you in it was a second. Right near his house. We lost your uh, connection for a minute. Yeah, that was a, that was a, a tragic. One of the worst ever. Horrible thing. The fire Two firefighters the lost. The, yeah. Backdraft, when they call it, when the flames Just come horrible. like that. Let's go to West Virginia where Tommy is on the phone. We're talking about Secretariat and uh, Brady comparing himself to Secretariat. Tommy, what do you think? I think I'm hearing some jealousy towards Tom Brady and his success. By whom? And uh, it, one, thing, what, one thing I remember during Deflate Gate and all that, people were just dying to tear Tom Brady down and the Patriots and their success. I look at the guy, I admire him. One, I wish I had his looks. Yeah, he's a fairly good-looking guy, yeah. Two, he was married married to a 
gorgeous woman. Fairly attractive. Yeah. Three, he's he's filthy rich from playing uh, sports. Yeah, all right. So, so far. no, I don't. You know what? I I really don't care about it. But yeah. all I know, I grew up in Foxborough, Massachusetts, and yeah. in the 1970s, they used to open Schaefer Stadium at halftime to let people in because they never sold out a game. <laughs> right. They were an embarrassment to the okay. NFL. Now, Tommy, that when you Brady, said you detect some jealousy, you're talking about from me. Is that what you're talking about? I, I absolutely am okay. pointing the finger at you. Marjorie, what do you think of that? Very you, good. Do you feel I'm jealous of uh, Tom Brady? Thank you, you Tom. <clears throat> you might be. You do feel that way? A little, a little bit, okay. perhaps, yeah. Okay. I'm sorry about that, Jim. Tommy said that from West Virginia. Yeah, he did. That's a little he did troubling. Say that. He did say that. And uh, some, another texter wants to know, this is Jeff from Weymouth, sure. whether Tom Brady is also headed to the glue factory. <laughs> of course, as we know, did, Secretary Shaker did not go to the glue right, factory. He lived for like another 30 years or something. Yeah, and, and, and siring... half of the horses in the Kentucky Derby yesterday have Secretariat's bloodline. Is that true? Yeah. They That's like that the... guy in Amsterdam that had, gave his sperm to like 500 people. Remember right. we talked about that the other day? That's right. Uh, Penny Chenery sold, it, by the way, she was able to save her father's farm, which was in bad uh, straits, uh, by selling a syndication of the horse's breeding rights, which oh. went for a bargain in those days. How much? Six, $6 million. Wow. It would have been probably $20 million now, or maybe, maybe $30 million. Or maybe a lot more, yeah. Uh, let's go to Elsa in Boston. What do you think, Elsa? What do you think Brady could get for that, by the way? <laughs> he could, he could, he could probably get a lot feet, more than $20 I think he million. could get a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, Elsa, you were there, and you are telling us what Brady said. What did he say on the radio? Go ahead. Oh, so, hello. So he said, um, we think of ourselves, talking about himself and his fellow football players, as heroes. And then, you know, he went on to say, but the firefighters were the real heroes. But well, that's I found good. it really odd that he called himself a hero. Uh, like, we... He didn't say other people think of us as heroes. He said we think of ourselves as well, heroes. I don't rem- so him being like, I'm the greatest of all time, well, and, it, and there know, was a really good horse. We should check it out. <laughs> My recollection is he was really <coughs> uh, in the right place, as the rest of Boston was, in terms of the loss of those two firefighters. So we'll check it out. Elsa? I'm not saying he disrespected, saying he disrespected the firefighters at all. But he pumped himself but I am up. saying that the phrase that he used and the way that he spoke I got it. it. I got spoke. It. That, no, I, I, he did not in any way disrespect those okay. firefighters okay. or their, their loss of their life. Uh, Elsa, thank you for sticking around and holding on and all that sort of thing. We really appreciate it. Lori in Charlestown says, I love all the appearances Secretariat makes on your show. I still recall how he strutted in an early morning training at Hialeah that spring 50 years ago. Yes, I was in the presence of Secretariat maybe within one that when, within 100 feet. Wow. And Lori says he loved being watched that morning. Oh, wow. That's a beautiful yeah. story. We've got to take a break. Okay. We're talking about Secretariat, story. not only the fact that it was he was the greatest racehorse. By the way, can I interrupt and say I know a lot of you are upset you can't get through in line. If you can't get through, we're going to do this again on Tuesday of next week <laughs> and probably Friday of next week, too. So don't worry. If you don't get through today, we'll take your calls every day. Have you seen the Secretariat movie, Jim? I have, actually. Have you watched the real life of him in the in the Belmont States? Can I tell you something? Movie, I, like a tremendous my issue machine. is not... Uh, I think Secretariat was unbelievable. My issue is twofold. Uh, Tom Brady comparing himself to Secretariat mm-hmm. and your obsession with Secretariat is rather unhealthy, I would say. It's <laughs> trying to be nice about it. Okay. We're talking about Secretariat yeah, and Tom are. Brady Always trying to, trying to horn in on Secretariat's fame yeah. on the 50th anniversary of his right. spectacular win in the Kentucky Derby. We'll be right back. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH.
Welcome back to uh, Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie And Thank God we're almost out of time. We're talking about Secretariat, <laughs> but more incredibly, that I'm fine with, sort of. We're talking about Tom Brady's really cringeworthy comparison on NBC yesterday during the Derby broadcast of himself, goat to goat, uh, Tom Brady to uh, Secretariat. By the way, our colleagues have looked this up at the Kentucky Derby Museum. Listen to this. The average thoroughbred's heart weighs 8.5 pounds. This is incredible. Secretariat's heart, 22 pounds, almost three wow. times as much. I was wrong three times. Yeah, and our colleague asked, how big is Tom Brady's heart? That's a really good a question, <laughs> by the way. He's a great football player. That's not the issue. Don't defend Tom Brady because I'm not suggesting he's not a fabulous football player. It just was really weird for him to be putting himself in the same yeah, class I'd as the greatest horse ever lived. to do a story. I mean, there was a story this morning that we read about some fans complaining about Brady being there. But I'm very interested to know how that came about. Aren't you? Yeah, I am too. Not much. Actually, not that much. Not that much. No, I'm really. Are you or not? Well, yeah, I am kind of. Why do you care? I mean, maybe Tom Brady is like me, a fanatic when it comes to Secretariat. Mm -hmm. Maybe that inspired him way back when he was a kid. Well, the only thing I've read so far, and I have to do more research, is he only got the gig after Prince Harry turned it down. That was the. (laughs) Another goat. Uh, Caroline in Ipswich, what's up? Only have 30 seconds, sorry. I'm just I'm just amazed at the the ego that this man Good. pretends on a daily basis. I'm with you. And the fact that that Boston has not realized that he's not that into you and he doesn't care about you <laughs> but yet these people still defend him to the nth degree. I mean, yeah, he was a great player, but Usain Bolt might be compared to secretary, but I just can't believe a human would would uh, compare himself to a horse. Well, I don't think Usain Bolt what, how, is going to do a spot for NBC. I don't think he would anyway. Oh, that's true. Compare. I just. No, I, I don't just, think most yeah. people do that. You know, Caroline. Yeah, that was an excellent pathetic. point to close it. What do you think about yeah. quickly Marjorie's obsession with the horse? Quickly. I love it. I think it's awesome. Okay. Well, <laughs> thank you, Caroline. Another strange person. <laughs> thank you, Caroline. Here. Taking a lot of grief. We're here done, Marjorie. Thank God. From you, Jim. But you know what? The listeners are with me. They're we'll with continue me. tomorrow. Okay. So uh, here's the deal. We're going to be at the Boston Public Radio we are. tomorrow. We're very excited about that. We're going to be joined by NBC Sports Boston's Trina Casey. We can talk more about Secretariat great. with her. And, of course, about Tom Brady uh, comparing himself to Secretariat at the mm. Kentucky Derby on Saturday. We're also going to have Carol, Roos, uh, Carol Rose rather from the ACLU of She'll Massachusetts. be talking about Secretariat, too. <laughs> she the legal aspect and you know of She is moving like a tremendous machine. That's correct. Absolutely. That is absolutely and right. Keith Lockhart, you know, a special song has been commissioned for the Boston Pops. Yeah. Oh, to a horse. I remember That's he, right. it's the a beautiful song. concerto. Okay, let's get this over with. What? <laughs> See you as John King. He'll be with us, too. I want to take our crew, Zoe Matthews, who's just back from the Kentucky Derby. She's not back. Oh, she's not? Okay. No. She's going to be back soon. soon. Aiden Conley, Nicole Garcia, Hannah Loss. Our engineer is John the Claw Parker. Is Brian Bell running the board today. Thank you very much, Brian, for correcting my many mistakes. Yep. And our executive producer mm-hmm. is Jane Bologna. you have anything more to say about Secretary Jim before we leave? No, I've had enough. It's just about, <laughs> just, just about enough, I think, on Secretary. I would say a tad too much. But who am I, you know? Okay. Okay, that's it. I'm Jim Browdy. Okay, fine. Okay, good. I'm Jim Browdy. I'm Marjorie Egan. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Hope you can tune in tomorrow. You will have a great day. He is moving like a tremendous machine.